Hey everybody, welcome to our two-part season finale episode that we decided was a two-parter halfway into take two. As you see, this is a long episode, so this is take one and take two, and stay tuned next week because we'll have take three for you, and uh, enjoy this episode. Yeah, Mr. Barnes is like like the Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos of that world. Jeffrey Bezos. Don't, 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 don't. Jeffrey Bezos. <laughs> I'm so mad at Bo Burnham for doing that to me. Like, that he made a he song. did it. But got his name stuck in my head. I don't want to think about that, man. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> hey there. I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now, we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. I learned that citronella plants don't actually keep... Uh, mosquitoes away did you yeah because like citronella oil can but you make that from smashing the plants but like a citronella like plant itself isn't going to repel mosquitoes that's at least what i read online very interesting everything online is true everything okay when are you going to start decorating for halloween because mal already <laughs> decorated that I fully believe. Um, I don't know. You apparently went on some shopping trip to, was it Spirit? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And you sent me all these photos of these decorations that I thought were really cool. I didn't realize that, that Spirit had such awesome decorations and I will definitely be visiting one soon. It was amazing. And I was like, oh my God, I just want to buy him all of these things. <laughs> I like genuinely was about to just get one of everything, but then I was like, well, let me ask him. Cause I just didn't want you to didn't want to get you one of everything. And then half of it go in your closet. So, <laughs> well, so this is, this will be the second fall season in this apartment, which is exciting. Cause I can like last year was the first time that I like bought stuff for myself to decorate and I got to put it away in a box, and now I can take that box out and redecorate, and it'll be yeah, super fun. I'm very excited about it, but I am also excited to shop for more holiday things. Mallory asked me, this is my sister, Mallory, if you guys don't know. Um, uh, she asked me like twice, like, you really think uh, Jordan's going to put that pumpkin out that I made? Fuck in? yeah. Uh, okay, so she basically, what is, like, she has a soldering gun, and she carved a plastic pumpkin. Was it? Pennywise's face or was it like a it was something about it it was Pennywise and I super appreciate it being plastic because last year I actually tried to put real pumpkins and real jack-o'-lanterns out there and the squirrels get to them they like destroy them oh wow yeah that's perfect because they will last forever if you take care of them um yeah she's really good at that yeah she's done that a couple of times with some pumpkins and I'm like holy shit <laughs> I can't even carve like a regular pumpkin she can carve a plastic one so nice um, well so you sent me a lot of pennywise stuff and i love pennywise i have a pennywise not pop socket what's it called funko pop 
And I have a puzzle that she also gifted me that I have since finished and framed. I'll just have like a Pennywise section happening. It'll be great. Hell yeah. It'll be awesome. But yeah, you really should go to a spirit because, um, or just any Halloween store because like they're starting to ramp up. However, though, that like same day or that same weekend or something, I went to Walmart and I went to michael's thinking that they would have like a bunch of halloween stuff out already just because spirit was opening and like walmart didn't have anything they were like we're waiting for back to school to finish and i'm like wow Uh, i see i was like i feel like y'all have christmas stuff out but okay (laughs) i guess that (laughs) makes sense i went to michael's recently um for surprise more avocado pit jars uh, and was also surprised to see that not a lot of, I think they had fall stuff out, but they didn't have like specifically Halloween things like they did last year. Yeah. Yeah. But we will see. We will see. I like decorate soon though. Cause I'm excited to, to see all of your decorations out. Of course. I mean, you could really get into the spooky season. It's not like you have a roommate anymore that like, he'll think you're a freak if you decorate in August. Bingo. That's a bingo. That's a Bingo. So why don't you tell the kids why we're here today? We are here because we enjoy movies. I think that's safe to say. And we just wanted to share our thoughts with everyone. So we decided to start a podcast and that's why we're here. It is very nice. And this particular episode is very special because we are doing it with someone who has just recently become a free woman again. Uh, She just got out of the clink for doing five to ten for armed robbery. Oh my God. She would never be armed with a gun, though. What would she what was she armed with? Her arms. Oh, yes, of course. So are all robbers armed robbers? Except for the armless ones, I guess. Oh, well, I don't know how good that would be. I mean, I don't want to be ableist. (laughs) Samantha, the lady that we are speaking of. She's going to be so confused when she listens to this. I can't imagine that she's listened to any of the previous guest episodes that we've done. but uh samantha has no idea that we have a podcast (laughs) we just invited her to speak with us and we're not going to tell her we're recording it no that's not true samantha is a very very dear and old friend of mine she's not old herself but we go back if that makes sense well if Um, she's your age do you do we want to bring up age shut up okay it was a joke I'm just messing with you, but not really, because now I realize that you can never make age jokes about me ever, ever. That's some power I didn't know I had. There's so much other ammunition I have, though. Samantha told me I actually have to be on my best behavior. Did she say uh, that? Because, yeah, she says I can't joke on you. Oh, jeez. Like that she's going to um, she's going to defend you if I like if I joke on you. So I'm going to have to be on my best behavior. Like that would stop you. Yeah, uh, I gotta tell you, uh, that's not gonna happen. But <laughs> uh, no, Samantha and I, uh, we we met in high school and have been very good friends ever since. She's one of my biggest supporters, uh, and she's legitimately probably one of, if not the smartest people I know. Uh, which is gonna make this episode a little bit intimidating, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for us, not you guys. You guys are about to be taken on a an adventure, oh, right. yeah. especially because of the movie we're doing. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> this individual is so intelligent; it's ridiculous. I, I I'm blown away when she speaks. Like she's just fascinated by everything, and 
I don't know. Y'all will see. I mean, she's just <laughs> – she's great. I met her at this really cool diner. I don't know. I don't remember the diner. Oh, we were in, I forget what it's called too. We were in Baltimore. Uh, I had been there once before and then you came to visit and we'd gone there again. And I know them by how good their milkshakes are. They have really good like cereal themed milkshakes that taste yeah. like the cereals. Like they had Captain Crunch and uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch milkshakes, which were awesome. And now I forget what they're called. Like the walls are decorated with like Pez dispensers and Barbie dolls. And, and I was like, oh my God, I can move in here. Toys and, we, and stuff. Yeah. We sat there and talked for like hours. It was awesome. So she is a philosophy major. And that is why really anytime we visit, I always leave having learned something. And that's why I love our visits and we should probably, we should really do it more often. Yeah. I told, I remember being like when the last time I'm like, Oh, I will make sure he visits again. And then like <laughs> the world fell apart. I stopped being yeah. able to walk and then uh, anybody stopped being able to go outside. So it's been a while, but we need to uh, definitely catch up. Yeah, for sure. Admittedly, I'd never heard of this movie before she had brought it up, but she seemed very excited about it. She said there's a lot of merit to it and a lot of things to discuss. So I am eager to watch it for the first time and and see what the what the big deal is. And I hope it's good. And I hope that this episode is great because it's our 50th episode. <gasps> is it really? Yeah. Oh, I sounded like a British person when I said that. I mean, okay, so we've had like 30-something quick takes, but uh, <laughs> this is episode 50 of like the full-on regular episodes that we That's do. awesome. And, and this is actually the end of the season as well. This will be our season finale. I'm sorry for bringing this stuff up like five minutes into the podcast. I should have opened with this, but <laughs> Halloween is more important. <laughs> yes, Samantha and Fido the movie will conclude our season and we'll be back uh very soon don't worry this season has been spectacular um to think that it goes back to like technically it's been over a year now because really our first episode of season three was midsummer which we did for my birthday oh my god yeah yeah so uh <laughs> yeah we're due for a break with my back surgery and everything like really screwed us up during the winter. And that's why we decided to make the season a little bit longer since we missed so much time mid season. Plus it's given us the opportunity to have all of these guests on, which has been an absolute blast and pleasure. I've had such yeah. a great time. I understand why, because it is like an undertaking to plan it all out, but it makes me wonder why we haven't had more guests on. I mean, we literally have had what this is eight guests in a row. Oh my God. Yeah. Courtney, Kimmy, then Kayleen, then Joe, Daniel, and then Dakota, Jaden, and then yep. Samantha. Holy shit. So, like, I mean, I know people have guests on their podcast all the time or whatever, but we were just not used to it. And no. now we are much more used to it. So season four is going to have guests galore. I'm a <laughs> poet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah, it rhymed. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know a damn thing about this movie. I assumed that it was about dogs, but you have told me that it is not about a dog. It is not about dogs. And I am just now suddenly having the realization I know one thing about this movie. It's about a zombie. 
and I know how you feel about zombie movies, but I don't think this is going to be one of those traditional zombie movies that you don't like. Well, you know what? I have realized that while there are a lot of zombie movies I don't like, some of the ones that are a little bit more off the beaten path, I really wind up liking a lot. Like I um, just a few weeks ago rewatched Shaun of the Dead. Love that movie. I love World War Z. I love... Oh, what's other zombie movies? I don't know. I like zombie movies, and I'm hopefully <laughs> going to add Fido to the list. And if I hate it, maybe Samantha can explain to me why it's good. <laughs> First of all, shout out to Nick and Jordan for killing it as always. Am I right? Yeah, they're awesome. Hey, I'm Stephen Crocker. I wanted to take a second to invite you to check out my new podcast called Dumbest in the Room. I talk with people who have different jobs and are life experiences and learn a little bit about what it is that they do and how they got there. The best way to stay learning is to always be the dumbest in the room. It's been a lot of fun talking with and learning from people, and I hope you'll join me. You can follow Dumbest in the Room at Dumbest ITR on all platforms, and the show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Back to you guys. Day two. Hello, Samantha. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Happy to be here. Honored to be spending this time with with you two guys, two of my favorite guys. We're honored to have you. We are so happy to have you. I'm so excited about this. I'm not allowed to say that word on this podcast, but I'm making an an exception. I really, I really am excited. (laughs) I'm excited and a little bit nervous. Why aren't you allowed to use that word? Because we get into this thing. We we get into it is not mine. It's my rule. It's sort of like I always hate ending takes on like, all right, well, I'm really eager for the next take. Like, I feel like I always it's it's natural almost for me to end it like, oh, I'm so excited to join the next take. So I just I want to try and get rid of that behavior. I can Um, see how it's sincere in the moment, but I suppose a person who's listening to your episodes one after another would be like, okay, that's repetitive. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know what it sounds like to me, though? Um, it just sounds like eagerness, and that's nice. I think that's nice. So you're so eager. I like that. That's a good. That's that's a good word to use instead of excited. You're very. You know eager. what word I really like? I really like the word earnest. I feel like everyone acts like earnest is a bad thing. I feel like people sort of treat it like a synonym for naive. I resent that. Um, I think that earnestness is a fabulous quality. In fact, I was thinking earlier. Um, after the, all of the very nice things you guys said about me in the Synecdoche, New York episode, I was like, I don't know, this is like a lot of pressure. You guys called me a genius, which I don't know if I can live up to that. I, I can't promise to be brilliant. All I can promise is to be earnest and excited and to care about everything and to think Aww. a lot about every single thing. So you be excited, Jordan. You be eager. I'll match you. I- I am very excited and eager. And we did, we we uh, reflected a lot of, or echoed, I guess, a lot of that praise in take one as well. So when you listen back, um, it is true. We praise you a lot. We think you're brilliant. I feel like you're setting yeah, your I listeners' mean, expectations really high. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I didn't know that they wouldn't be met. That was a lot of double negatives, but I think that make, made sense. If I didn't think it was true, I wouldn't have said it. So I did appreciate the things that you said. And even though... I don't know, Kimmy. It was very nice. Uh, I think I told you this a little bit that, you know, sometimes like I talk to people and I can tell they think that I'm being a lot. Uh, and, and like for the most part, like I, I like myself and think I'm a good and interesting person. Like I think who I am is fine. I'm fine. But it doesn't always feel great in the moment when I can tell people are having that reaction. Uh, but after listening to the Synecdoche New York episode, whenever that happens, 
in my mind, I'm like, well, one person's too much is another person's, she sounds like the coolest person. Uh, which, which I think Kim is the one who said that. So I'm like, ah, well, okay. You have nothing to worry about. It's going to be a great time. I Sometimes I can tell people want me to be less, but I, I, I cannot. So. And that's exactly why you're on episode 50. <laughs> I'm so honored. Well, I'm very lucky to have lovely friends like you who are interested in literally all of my thoughts about everything. <laughs> Samantha, I got to be honest with you. I kind of was surprised that the movie that you picked wasn't like Lincoln or something. I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. That was actually one of the challenges I had in picking a movie. A lot of them are like movies I really like watching, but I'm not really sure there'd be a lot to say about them. Like they're just nice to watch. Like I really love this. Don't make fun of me. I mean, you can also love it, but music and lyrics, which I wouldn't necessarily argue is like a good film. It's fun to watch and I love it so much. Um, but like, it is there a lot to say to about watch. it? I don't know. I've not seen that, but I'm adding it to my watch list. Oh, Jordan, I think you would actually enjoy it. It's really silly, but it's fun. Cool. Adding it now. So there were fun movies that I like that I just wanted to do, but then there were others that like I really like feel a lot about, but they are, a lot of them are based on sort of like true stories and like nonfiction, and I wasn't sure that that was quite the discussion you guys are trying to have, right? Like this is sort of about like the films themselves. Um, rather than like the historical movies I like, it's because I'm interested in the events that they're depicting, right? Uh, so I was like, this is not a podcast about why Abraham Lincoln is our most precious president. This is a podcast about the movie. Uh, and I'm sure there is a lot to say about Lincoln, but like there's no way in hell that like if we did that, that's what I would be discussing. Right? Got it. Like, I have a lot <laughs> of thoughts about Lincoln. You can't see my big collection of books here. It's honestly an illness at this point. But there are probably like 15 Lincoln books. Only three of which I've read. I don't own most of the other Lincoln books that I have read. Um, so, so you know. So, so I decided against that because I was like, that's not the point. Um, I also thought about... Uh, this is out of character for movies for me, but I um, recently watched, recently within the last few months, uh, Greyhound, which is like a World War II type movie. It's got Tom Hanks in it. Oh, yeah. I do not deny. It's like... Yeah, have you seen it? No, I've not seen it, but I've heard about it. and I, I know a bunch of people that have seen it. Okay, well, I am going to ask you guys to not watch it until I get to tell you something you should know first. There's cool context to it. Uh, and so don't watch it until we have a tiny seminar about that first. Uh, but it's <laughs> basically about a guy. It's, it's Tom Hanks. And I can see that it's a little bit corny. I'm pretty sure like Tom Hanks was like, if he didn't, I think he wrote it maybe um, or something. He had a really big role in the creating of the film other than just starring in it. And I feel like you can kind of tell there's a little bit of self-serving in the character that he has for himself uh he's a bit of a saint which i don't object to tom hanks can have it uh he deserves it it's fine um but it is a little bit like hard to buy in a, in a way uh but he's like the the captain i guess of a ship that's trying to cross the atlantic during world war ii during the battle of the atlantic and i like last year randomly came across this lecture by a historian who learned a lot about basically the secret war games that like the British Navy was doing that essentially cracked the tactics that U-boats with the German U-boats were using to attack the convoys and then how they fixed them and it ended up being super interesting. I was obsessed with it for like six months uh, and so that's why I like that movie but like that's not about the movie that's about the thing right so I so that's why I didn't pick something like that right like uh, it's not about whatever random thing I'm obsessed with it's about the movie so so that's sort of how I narrowed down my list. 
That makes sense. And I don't think we've ever done like a nonfiction movie, but I think the whole purpose of take three is to research. And I feel like doing a nonfiction movie kind of is the research. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe we, yeah. we that did later. Titanic, but that story is like wholly fictional other than yeah. the boat, you know? Yeah, but there's a lot of cinematic stuff to talk about that movie. I listened to that episode and there's plenty there yeah. without even really having to fuss a whole lot about like the factual nature of the events themselves, right? Like, that yeah. movie is a masterpiece, um, especially when you, like, consider when it was made. Um, I did think about briefly, I briefly considered Dunkirk, um, <laughs> because I do think there's a lot about that movie and how it's made that's interesting. I didn't necessarily like that movie. Um, I kind of didn't. When I finished, I was like, God, that was exhausting to watch. And then I was like, well, I think that was the point, though. That was the point. It was an exhausting event to live through. It was a very realistic <laughs> depiction of the emotional experience and also just sort of like the narrow uh, hope that the, pu- the the soldiers were being evacuated from the beach, you know? Just yeah. the narrow chances they'd get off. Like, yeah, that, that's, that was right. That's exactly what it was like. But then I was like, I didn't like that movie and I don't want to watch it again and I sure don't want to talk about it that long. So... <laughs> <laughs> So then tell us about Fido. Like, why why this movie? When was the first time you saw it? So I was actually, I never, and I think feel like you would have guessed this, I never would have picked this movie myself. Like, it is not a movie I would see, like, a trailer for and be like, I'm going to watch that. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in movies about, like, zombies. I'm sure I've seen, I don't know that I've ever seen a full zombie film. Um, my brother watched a lot of them. I'm sure I've seen bits and pieces, tons of them. But I don't think I've ever watched all of them. I was assigned this film in college for um, for a philosophy course I took called Monsters, Zombies, and Freaks. Uh, and so we... we uh, that sounds so awesome. cool. We so also cool. watched Edward Scissorhands. I, I didn't want to pull up the syllabus because I wasn't sure if that was like a take three thing. So I did not refresh my memory on that. I thought I would save that part. But yeah, so we, it was sort of a lot about defining the nature of what it is to be human, but we did it by sort of defining all of these things that aren't human. Like... Uh, what is a zombie? Like, where do you draw the line between, like, being a person and a zombie? And, like, a person and a monster. And, and yeah, and a person and a freak, yeah. right? Uh, and it was, yeah, I was a little bit skeptical of it at first, but it was actually, it was genius. The the, the professor who, who taught that course, uh, it was so impressive, and it was super engaging. And I think we also did Plato's Republic. But, but, yeah, so I was assigned this movie and ended up liking it a lot more than I had expected to. One of the first things I did was text my brother and be like, have you seen this? Uh... Nick, you, you may not know, uh, I have a brother, he's my twin brother, and we're best friends. He's one of my all-time favorite people. Uh, and Great he guy. is Great guy. Not, not unlike myself, uh, is interested in literally everything all the time. And is, uh, <laughs> he's, he doesn't think this, but he's substantially smarter than I am. And he has much better memory for specifics than I do. And so he's just super fun to talk to about everything. One of my all-time favorite things, he calls me when he drives home from work a couple times a week. On Monday, he just called me, and instead of greeting me, he goes, I just learned the coolest thing about the Scottish Highlands. Would you like to hear about it? And I was like, yes, obviously I would. Please tell me. Uh, <laughs> so the very first thing I did, I was like, Zachary, you watch zombie movies. Have you seen this? You know, and then he and I did a whole a whole breakdown of it. Um, but so I had to write a paper about it. I believe, like I said, I held off on refreshing my memory, but I believe the paper I wrote about this movie was pairing Fido with Descartes. What is it called? Oh, no. I'm blanking. I'm a bad philosophy major. I'm blanking on what it's called. Descartes' Meditations <laughs> totally is, okay. is the short. That's not the formal name, but if you say that, everyone knows what you mean, right? Descartes' Meditations. Everyone. Where he's reevaluating, like, what, when he's, like, the thought experiment. It's his famous thought experiment where he's trying to rigorously consider what he can actually know without a doubt. 
right? Like without there being, and so it's kind of, it feels kind of extreme, right? He's like, can I know that I exist, right? And he's like, well, how do I know that? Could like a demon be perceiving me to make me think I exist? Uh, and I think the takeaway that anyone who didn't like, you know, study philosophy knows is that um, I think therefore I am is the, is, is the outcome really of that. That's the headline from, from Descartes' Meditations. And so she paired um, that work with this film. That was a long answer to an easy question. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay that's okay yeah i think uh the whole syllabus and i'd love to hear parts of your your paper as well definitely more take three territory but that's um, what i thought but, you yeah. know i'm eager to hear it i can't wait <laughs> i do remember that i named that paper and this is only funny if you know this so there's a, uh, a famous it's a seminal feminist work called our bodies ourselves um and it was a work that was really popular like during the feminist movement the early wave you know um basically about like women's bodies and also like their reproductive health and it gave women access to information they didn't really have at the time and it's a big famous book all you know feminists love it and i named my zombie essay our zombies ourselves which i thought was very funny. <laughs> clever i like it i like i it. thought so thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh so i can say that i really thought this movie was a lot of fun oh, uh it was it was definitely like out of left field. I think the whole time I was like, I have no idea what direction she's going to take with this. It could be about like, I don't know, uh, suburban life in the sixties. It could be about animal abuse. It could be about just like general. Did it surprise you? I was like, I was like, this could be anything. We, there's so many things that could be covered in this movie. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what direction she's going to take. It's going to be a great surprise. Um, yeah. How did you feel about it? Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was very confused going in like I wasn't I just did not expect you to pick something like this so then I was like it's got to be spun on its head in some way and I really liked the way that it was spun on its head uh I think that I liked the frankness of it like when they were like oh you know old people can't be trusted and like <laughs> I just I just think it was just so funny the way that they delivered some of these like deadpan lines and they were hysterical like you made me shoot my stupid brother and then he's just, just done yeah there was the no, kid just falls and dies yeah, so it was crazy <laughs> um I really like uh some of the actors in this movie like Dylan Baker and um Tim Blake mm -hmm. Nelson uh even though I don't like them in this movie I think they're good at acting and stuff so um I love the idea that these kids have been like trained to shoot zombies their whole lives. Like this alternate reality is so interesting. The casual violence of it is like off putting. I, I've been struggling to think of right, quite the word for it, but there's this like the juxtaposition of that moment when, you know, it has this very like 1950s aesthetic, you know, idyllic suburbia with, you know, the old timey music that's playing and then the kids go outside for their outdoor education and they're doing like target practice um, and singing that <laughs> yeah. creepy song about aiming for their heads. And I was like, what? <laughs> Eerie isn't quite the right word, but like that moment, it's horrifying. It's so horrifying. It is. <laughs> and when it, when it cut to that scene with just, it's, it's like they're all in a classroom talking to this guy and then it cuts to them on the ground with their guns. Yeah. I, I had to like shift Casual. my, uh, yeah. And I was like, oh, this movie is like this kind of campy. It's yeah. this kind of movie. And it, it really changed what I was expecting. And uh, well, I think satire from on, for it's sure, just, yeah. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> and, and that's another thing. I was like, oh, are we going to talk about like gun control? Like, what is this? What's happening here? Well, we could. I'm um, not sure that that's, the movie's making much of a comment on that, but sure, we can. I'm happy right. to anytime. I have thoughts. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. My overall feeling was surprised mm-hmm. that a movie that looks like a kitty family Disney movie, something that would come out like on the Disney Channel, actually had a lot to say, and there was uh, a lot more meat to it than I expected. I was also surprised. It's interesting because it is violent, but also like there's almost no gore in it, right? There's like a little bit of blood, yeah. right? But almost no real gory violence, which is mm-hmm. comical in its own way, I thought. Yeah. He texted me today and he's like, I, I just can't stop thinking about this movie. And I was like, that's good. Yeah. Like it's, it is something that will stick with me as well. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. great choice. Well, great thank choice. you guys. I think we've already spoiled it, but like if you have not watched this movie, go see it before we do take three or <laughs> I mean, see, search it out. Where did we watch it? Prime. It's prime. on prime. Yeah. It's free on prime. Uh, it's even if like you walk away and like that just was not for me. I dare you to not find a ton of things that you like specific lines or the ways that they shoot things. There are things in this movie that made me want to watch it again. And that's so weird because I think I like turned it off being like, I don't think that was for me. Like, I don't think I was the target audience for that, but I think I felt that way at first too. Yeah, it's weird how a movie grows on you like that. When I was organizing my notes for this, uh, which is sort of a very different kind of thinking about it than I did when I was like writing my paper, you know, um, I was struck by the fact that the film, in terms of its like moral messaging, right, isn't particularly subtle. Um, but I also felt like it raises a lot of questions um, that it doesn't answer. And so I did feel like there's so many things that I like noted as interesting. And I was like, oh man, this raises a really interesting question for us to consider. But like, but what is the answer to that? Like, where do I land? I, I left feeling so like, I don't know, which is sort of an interesting, an interesting space to occupy that it is not really subtle. It's pretty clear about what it's trying to say. But then there are all of these layers where it, it just, you know, it launches all of these little questions that just like live in your brain to just be mulled over, you know, in the background Gross. all the time. Yeah, which is perhaps it's it, part of its genius. Like, it's very compelling. The world that they created so quickly blew me away because I feel like, you know, 15 minutes into the movie, I mean, this is an alternate reality and I feel like I am very well immersed in it and that's not easy to do. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I took some notes as well when I was watching this, but I'd love to hear your notes, Sam. I took comprehensive notes. You know me. Uh, they have, (laughs) they have headings and subheadings. (laughs) Uh, some of it are just sort of like the outlines of the facts, um, so that as we were having a discussion that like I could confirm, sort of. I didn't get to type all of them. I took handwritten notes during the movie. There's like several pages here. I'm I'm annoying. I'm oh, sorry. Wow. I mean, I'm not sorry, but like, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm a lot. I'm aware. Uh, I'm exactly no, the right amount. No, you are not a lot. You are just enough. Yeah, I'm you the right amount. The perfect it's a amount. Lot, mm-hmm. It's it's not too exactly. much, but it's a lot. Um... <laughs> But so, so I did sort of like a setting the scene and like the basics zombies, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't really watch a lot of zombie films. And so I paid particular attention to sort of some of the, just the realities of the zombies in this world, right? Like how they came to be with like the cosmic radiation and that stuff. Um, so a lot of it seems to be relatively standard. I think the cosmic radiation may be a relatively unique thing, but like the destroying the brain to kill them kind of a thing seemed common. Yeah, I, I, I noted, I did think it was really interesting um, that, like, the, the only way to avoid being a zombie is this prohibitively expensive funeral. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> it, I have more on that in my section about capitalism. 
but <laughs> I also thought that the fences were interesting, and we only really see the fences um, depicted in a cartoonish way at that film at the beginning, and then sort of right at the end when Mr. Bottoms is like threatening Timmy. But I thought it was sort of strange. Um, maybe I missed something, but just one little wire fence and some some barbed wire. Like I don't know. That seems insufficient. I have I have some uh, questions about how this actually works in practice. It seems like the population of uh, humans versus zombies would get really out of control really fast. Seems to me like if 90% of the population is becoming zombies because the funerals are so expensive. I'm unsure about how one little fence with some barbed wire is a solution to this problem, but... Absolutely. Suspend belief, I suppose, whatever, <laughs> you know. I also took basic notes on all the characters so I could keep them straight because there's a lot of them, uh, and well, not there are that many of them, but some of the particulars are important, like Bill's backstory with his dad, for example. Uh, so I kept some of those notes, nothing that's not important, anything to, like, get into. I do have a, my longest section is sort of, like, the nature of the zombies, so sort of, like, what we know about, what they can do, um, the behaviors we uh, can observe in the film, uh, and also sort of, like, how it shows that the residents of Willard, like, regard them, which seems complicated because it seems like a lot of that is almost like the result of propaganda manufactured by ZomCon, yeah. which, again, more about that in my section on capitalism. <laughs> you know, but there, there is just, and some of it is maybe just my philosophy training that makes me very nitpicky about language, you know, but there's a lot of this stuff about, like, whether they're alive or dead, and it kind of feels like what they're really asking is, like, if they're people or not, and those aren't really the same thing. Uh, there's similar and related things, but there's nuance to those distinctions. Yeah. Uh, so I took some, some like, notes on that, but it, it does seem like ZomCon is at least a, a large part of what is perpetuating this idea that they are stupid and mindless and driven by nothing more than the hunger for human flesh, right? But interestingly, ZomCon also creates this very unique situation where they've created those, like, domestication collars or whatever that neutralizes that aspect of a zombie. So if that is the defining aspect of the zombies, these creatures, as they call them, you know, they refuse to characterize them by anything other than, like, being driven by the hunger for flesh. But then they find a way to tame that. Then what are they? Which is... Mm. And they created that problem, which is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it also yeah. serves them for people to think that they're nothing but, like, basically machines because they sell them for menial labor. And if people think of them as more than just these, like, sort of flesh robots, right, then um, <laughs> people won't like that very much. It's harder to sit with that idea. But if you're like, this isn't a person, they don't have thoughts, they don't have feelings, they just carry my groceries and deliver my milk and whatever, then you're more likely to be fine with that. And so I... My hypothesis is that ZomCon is a propaganda machine and they created this idea because of money. But so that was sort of my, and then I also took some notes on like the language and nature, like the words people use to refer to them, you know, creatures, a lot of referring to them as it rather than he or she, Yeah. Uh, never as a person. And with just a couple of exceptions, they don't use names or humanizing pronouns. The exception being obviously Fido to me, to me from the get go says him, right? He says, when his dad is using the shot collar, he says, you're hurting him. Um, and then Tammy, which was his own situation. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else is just like, they talk about owning them, like property, uh, not things. They're not people and slaves, but also not because they're not humans to to the residents of Willard. So, but but I mean, close, pretty, pretty close. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And even Timmy at first only refers to Fido as zombie. He's like, hey, zombie, stupid zombie. You know, he doesn't call him by name until he, he does name him, which which I thought was interesting. I kept track of all the jobs we saw zombies do. <laughs> it could really easily be summarized as just menial labor, right? Like there's a crossing guard. They deliver the milk, the mail, the newspapers. They act as like butlers or servants, door attendants, movers, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhat like they walk dogs and that kind of stuff. The fact that those are all menial tasks, I think, is not necessarily evidence of their intellectual capacity. Um, although I do think the movie gives us some contradictory examples about that. But a lot of that could just be summarized by like their limited motor skills, right? Like the zombies don't have any fine motor skills. They're kind of clumsy and slow. And so the fact that they're only doing these menial jobs and nothing that complex I don't think in and of itself is proof that they're stupid and, and like don't have higher thought processes, although I think they want us to think that. But also, like, they can't do a lot of other things because their bodies are just not equipped to do it, um, which I thought was an interesting question. You know, like, can they have deeper thoughts than that? Mm-hmm. Complicated. I do think that maybe I have some questions that are maybe, like, plot questions that perhaps are just, like, they didn't address for time or they just didn't, like ever explicitly and I'm thinking about it too much you know uh, so I think maybe there I have some questions that are maybe like that for example I'm confused about the funeral situation I want to know why they're so expensive they just say that they are so prohibitively expensive but they don't tell us like how they got to be that way in our times in our reality they're expensive but like people still have them yeah uh, like what is it like like did Zomcom just like jack up the price of funerals or like like how I get that it is expensive and that's really all you need to know for the film but like i have questions also can't people get cremated like in a practical sense it seems to me you could behead a dead person and then cremate them yeah Uh, like it's not like those ashes are going to reanimate into a zombie like that's not an option i don't understand unless zombie was like no you can't do that because of capitalism they don't answer that and so i don't know if they did that on purpose or not but the questions they ask sort of about like sort of the characteristic of being alive of being a person of being you know um Versus, like, being dead, uh, and if one's better than the other, those kinds of questions, uh, intentional. I think those that was the point, in my opinion. I think just thinking about it now, going back to that kind of stuff, it almost seems like, like, I, I wrote this in my notes, one of the funniest things that the dad said, <laughs> let me find it. Um, oh, I think I know what it's going to be. Yeah, so I said the whole funeral planning thing didn't really kick in until the first thing that dad said when he found out he was having another kid was, yeah. I don't think I can afford another funeral on my salary. <laughs> I think obsessed. that's really clever. Yeah, and I think maybe it's like, maybe it ties in with this whole like suburban 50s thing where it's like you're kind of expected to because you need to maintain this image, uh, which is also another thing that I wrote down that like everyone is so fake. Like the amount of times that Timmy was told, let's keep this between us or like let's... <laughs> Um, let's, this is our little secret. It's yep. like, everyone is so fake. They're putting on this huge facade. His mom is like, don't dad... play baseball by yourself. It makes you look lonely. It's fine if you yeah. actually are lonely, but you don't want to look lonely. Like, oh, exactly. your shirt's all messed exactly. up because those bullies beat you up? Oh, did anybody see you like that? Change your shirt. We don't have to talk about it. Like, yeah, there is, there's a lot of that. Uh, from Helen in particular, but yeah. I mean, she got a zombie because... Uh, they, they their neighbors had a bunch of zombies, and she didn't want to seem like out of the loop. Yeah, Jordan, I was wrong about the quote you picked, though. I thought you were going to pick the quote where his dad tells him, uh, you know, that his feelings don't matter. All that matters is like, yeah, basically not becoming a zombie, right? <laughs> you want to stay alive, and then you want to not be a zombie, and like, yeah. you can see that that is the dad is obsessed. He lives his whole life 
deeply preoccupied by these funerals. They go on Sunday drives to attend strangers' funerals, and he takes photos gleefully the whole time like a weirdo, like obsessed. <laughs> the whole the whole head coffin thing had me cackling at the TV. That was so that they had a whole separate coffin for the head. That was really funny. You would be inclined to do that if you didn't want to be a zombie, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I have seen a lot of zombie movies, and like the, a lot of the things in here were obviously referencing those and parodying and satirizing them. The head coffin thing—I'd never seen that before. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. You said cremating, and that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. I, I like that they introduced things like that. I thought that was a fascinating way to avoid the zombie problem. <laughs> and it like it, he's also. I know he's like, oh, no, we're getting funerals like we that also ties into the whole uh, this whole like fake thing when the wife is like, you know what, we're just we're going to go die now. And and he's like, no, we're having funerals. No, he said, me, she said what, you mean when she said me and Timmy are going zombie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, me and Timmy, we're going to go zombie. And he's so yeah. horrified. Well, I mean, so the yeah. question that that raises, I mean, I think like the whole point of of the dad's character and his whole funeral thing, right? Is that especially like the Sunday drives aspect, right? Like that is so far out of your way. You know, to be concerned about not becoming a zombie and saving up for a funeral is a rational way to react to this reality. But you know, the touristing of other people's funerals is crazy. That is a lot. Uh, and so I think it, I think what the film is asking us to do is ask, like, is that a life? Is that a life? Like he is a living person, not an undead being, right? Um, and presumably, we're supposed to think that's better. And I think the film is asking us if that is the case, especially juxtaposed to to Fido as a character. Yeah. Living a life so obsessed with death, it's like, you might as well be a zombie. I mean... Yeah. I mean, it seems like he's he's intentionally resistant to really having any emotional bonds with his wife yeah. or his son. Um, and you kind of see that through a lot of the characters, actually. Uh, it would be... It's one of the more bizarre aspects of, like, the day-to-day living in that reality, right? That, like, at any given moment, a loved one... Um, is suddenly you're just supposed to shift on a dime and they're not a person anymore and you're not supposed to have any feelings about them and you also have to be prepared to essentially commit violence against them at any moment, which would be a bizarre, like, emotional state to be in all the time, you know? The way that people talk about old people is kind of an interesting and somewhat humorous because it's mostly abstract, you know? But, like, there are, all the jails have been converted into, like, old people homes, retirement homes. Yeah. Uh, they're just like, you can't. Old people seem friendly, but you can't trust them. Uh, well, yeah, because, you know, they could be, they will die suddenly, and then they'll be a zombie, and you have to be prepared to... Exactly. ...to destroy their brains, right? Like, <laughs> so so everybody is, like, ready to commit violence against their loved ones at any given moment. That's a weird life to live. This is really only tangentially related, but one of my favorite lines was, Grandma fell down, and she's getting back up again. Like that, <laughs> those, like, small lines are so clever. I love them oh, so much. Oh, that's genius. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. that made me, I literally cackled at that. That, that whole opening great. film is quite charming. It's like a news really type. I will say, I thought it was very convenient. This was all brought on by, like, a blameless apocalypse um, we live on the pro- the precipice of a, of apocalypse or to ourselves, um, and people are responsible for it. Like I thought, it was very convenient. There's just cosmic radiation. It's nobody's fault. Nobody did anything. I felt like that was a little bit hard to buy into. I was like, I don't know. I think if something like this happens, it's somebody's fault. Uh, un- unrealistic, but okay. <laughs> the zombies she can take, but an unblamed apocalypse that crosses the line. <laughs> 
I will say though, it was a pretty good depiction of what um, I think was is it Naomi Klein? I don't want to get her confused with the other Naomi who's always saying crazy stuff. There's two famous writers named Naomi, and one of them is bananas, and the other one is normal. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Naomi Klein. I think that the the whole Zomcon situation is a is a good depiction of what she would say is disaster capitalism, the way private industries will yeah. will exploit these emergencies. One of the things I don't think I noticed when I watched this from my class, but was was really stuck out to me this time, is that um, I don't think we see any any sort of a government, right? It's just Zomcon. Like Zomcon is handling what would be the role of the police. Yeah. Um, you know they. They also seem to perform what is almost like something between police and like animal control, right? Like they they come and respond to like zombie incidents, um, yeah. and then the situation with the Hendersons, right? When they think she's a missing person, like they're the ones investigating, and when they think like Mr. Henderson has done something improper, they arrest him. I guess arrested him, it. yeah. Um, you know they are performing. It seems all of the functions. Of government, and at some point, Mr. Bottoms like threatens Timmy, and he's like, "You know, I could throw your whole family into the wild zone for what you've done." Uh, so there's, so what you're saying is there's no judicial process involved. So it doesn't sound like there's, yeah. there's, there's no jury of your peers. It just seems like this crazy man gets to make a decision. <laughs> um, so, so it does seem like it has taken all of the roles of the state, which. Sounds like the real apocalypse to me. The zombie thing sounds fine, but no thank you. Um, <laughs> like That's horrifying and dangerous, right? That's very scary. I mean, I don't want to get political on your show. But as you know, I'm a fan of the government. I'm perpetually seeking a shirt. This is I heart big government. There's lots of things to criticize about government, but they're the best and honestly only tool that, that we as individuals have for constraining corporations. And history bears that out. Corporations do lots of bad stuff, and the only way to make them not do bad stuff is to pass laws that punish them or disincentivize doing bad stuff. You know, corporations didn't stop polluting, like, rivers because they wanted to. They did it because the government made them pay lots of money if they didn't, over and over and over again. You know, countless examples. That's not totally the point, so I won't go on a tangent, but, like, that bears out. So so while I readily admit that the government is a flawed institution, it, as an institution, has to exist, right? Uh, and I feel strongly that it should be fiercely defended, not all of its actions or actors as individuals, but as an institution, I think we have to to fight for it and to take ownership of it, or else we'll live in an apocalyptic world where Zomcon runs stuff and jacks up the cost of funerals and whatever, right? Like, oh, no thank you. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Was it confirmed in the movie that Zomcon was responsible for the funeral costs? No, they didn't. That that's one of my unanswered questions, but gotcha. Okay, that's my best guess. That's my hypothesis because yeah, I mean, it, it makes seems sense. Like... And it, it even makes sense that like maybe they started it, maybe or it, maybe it was accidental. But they're like, hey, let's run in with this with this you know thing that we invented. Yeah, it, that it, is disaster capitalism. Sense. Yeah, I mean the other thing yeah. is in the the incident with the Hendersons. I think his alleged crime is that it was like an unpermitted burial. Which, like, that's not an unreasonable thing for the state to regulate, right? But ZomCon is the one enforcing that, which yeah. just seems interesting. That's suspicious, that's suspicious to me. <laughs> um, so, so they don't answer that question. That's one of the things that they don't tell us. But considering that they, there's sort of like a police state going on um, in, in Willard, where we're supposed to think everything is fine, but if you transgress in any way, you get thrown outside into the wild zone for zombies to get you, right? It also would be very useful to their business model, right? Like, if 10% of the public gets funeral and 90% of the public uh, becomes zombies, they have an endless resource for menial labor to sell to individuals and businesses. Yeah. 
it's not not a bad deal if yeah. you're a corrupt corporation in the apocalypse. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got to make a living, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> a living. That's funny. <laughs> yep. Like, <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I did do some interesting notes. I thought there were some sort of contradictory um, depictions of like the zombies and sort of what it is to be a zombie and what they're capable of. And I really wasn't quite sure where to land on that, right? Um, like in terms of their intelligence, right? Like we can see that they are able to follow at least simple instructions most of the time. Although there is, like, when the Bottoms family was moving into their house, like, the movers are, like, dumping all their fragiles onto the ground because, like, they're not understanding what, what the bomb is telling them to do. And then also, like, the first time we meet Fido, he thoughtlessly bends over to pick up the martini glass that, that Bill drops, and he dumps that, like, pot roast on the floor, you know, which is, like, yeah. <laughs> a, you know, that is the kind of thing, like, like a someone who's who is not very thoughtful would do. But then later, I feel like he demonstrates quite a bit of foresight and planning when he, when there's a whole like Lassie segment uh, where the bullies are attacking him and him and Timmy and, you know, those two little like Boy Scouts get die and then he like stacks those rocks in front of like that shed to make sure he doesn't get out. And then wherever he finds it, he has a coat and he turns up that collar so that people can't see that his collar has been deactivated, right? It's broken. Like that's planning Mm -hmm. on his part. Like that's, that's anticipation and so those are, even within just, like, Fido specifically, those are sort of mixed messages. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to understand that to be, like, growth for him over time or or what. Um, also, I thought, I was unsure what we're supposed to understand in terms of, like, continuity for, like, what the zombies remember from being their human live selves to when they're zombies. Because, like, at the end, um, the zombie Mr. Bottoms... Um, and Fido seem to, like, recognize each other. And you can see the sort of, like, contempt, which I think suggests that, like, they remember their lived experiences. They just can't express them because the zombies aren't verbal. Uh, unclear. The only other example I remember that is, like, when Fido seems so satisfied um, to smoke a cigarette, but that could be dismissed as, like, a physiological response because, you know, cigarettes is, like, a physical addiction. It's a chemical thing. So that was also sort of an unanswered question for me. I wasn't quite sure I, I you just keep bringing up stuff that i'm just like in awe of like it, it's it all makes sense like i i don't it, they were never things that i even considered to think about when i first saw this so i mean i didn't make an uh, argument I, I just asked lots of questions but yeah it's it's true it's true i'm really buying the idea that i'm, I'm buying the idea that uh that that zomcon is like responsible for all this it's not even something that i ever considered but it makes perfect sense it makes absolute sense um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's good stuff. Yeah, Mr. Bottoms is like like the Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos of that world. Jeffrey Bezos. Don't, 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 don't. Jeffrey Bezos. <laughs> I'm so mad at Bo Burnham for doing that to me. Like, that he made a he song. He did it. But got his name stuck in my head. I don't want to think about that, man. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> Oh man, that's like one of my trigger. I'm like, like those Russian spies that can get activated by words. Like I, if you say JV, I like have to start singing that song. Oh, I have to go on a furious rant about how he should be in jail, uh, but it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm very <laughs> mad about the fact that, like, I just don't think that any, even maybe all of the people in jail combined have done enough harm to, have done more harm to society than he has. Single-handedly, he is more dangerous to the whole world as an individual than all the people currently in jail are. And as a society, okay. we get to make the laws. So, like, I don't understand. Talk us, Put him in jail. Talk about that. Talk about that. This is this is our show. We can do whatever the fuck we want to do. Please talk about that. I mean, I... You're in great company. Yes. I uh, am not a lawyer. I'm not a legal scholar. You know, but society, laws are really just, in their most basic essence, right, communities and societies making rules. And when you transgress those rules, you get punished. There are consequences. You know, like, there are just boundaries of behavior that, like, this is acceptable and constructive. And then some behavior, they're like, this is not cool. We can't have a functioning society. It's not acceptable. No thanks, right? And you see that sort of in, in small communities and then states and, you know, like at all the levels, that is how that functions, you know? And sometimes it's informal. There's a lot of sort of like informal social rules and you get punished by either just like not being invited to stuff when you transgress them, right? Like communities regulate themselves and laws are formal ways of doing that. Of course, it's complicated because of the power dynamic involved in who has always been involved in writing them and defending them and such but but in theory in theory right we get to make the laws the only thing that stops something from being a crime is that like we haven't asked our legislators to pass a law about it right or we haven't amended our constitution to make it a crime you know and and these things do shift over time I won't get too much into it, but you see that in the way the Second Amendment has been treated for most of the Second Amendment's existence. It was not interpreted by literally anyone at any level of any court to mean that you could have unfettered access to all the guns you wanted forever. That is a very recent phenomenon. I want to say it's like the 70s, ballparking it. Uh, I couldn't say with 100% confidence, but ballparking it, right? We see a lot of really dramatic political shifts around that time. A lot of it is probably reactionary kind of politics as a resorting of the political parties around that era, right? Um, and that is when we begin to see the shift into the idea that apparently, despite the words well-regulated being so important to that particular amendment, <laughs> um, the idea that unfettered access is what the Constitution guarantees, right? That is that is a new interpretation to that law. And, and the public, ostensibly, that wasn't driven by the courts. That was driven by actors outside of the courts and money, which is, you know, obviously a complicated thing, right? The forces for that. Um, but it isn't, my point is that the the statute itself, right? The language in the constitution itself is not the driving factor of the shift. People outside of that document did this um, because we, we own it and we get to manage it. And so if there was all of the political will from the public, we could make anything a crime in theory, right? Like in theory, there are some things that are obviously absurd, but the absurd things, there wouldn't be the will to do that. We, you know, I have a lot of feelings about what we consider crimes and laws versus what we consider to be regulations. Um, I have a lot of, I'm sure that there is a very particular legal nuance to that, but I feel like in general, when every, like just people in the political discourse talk about it, we treat regulations like they're not laws and that's not true in terms of they have legal force and violating a regulation is not perceived to be as bad as violating a law. Um, but often I feel like violating regulations like the EPA, for example, right? Like that is a bigger crime to society on a scale that is different than like, I don't know, 
taking someone's purse, which is bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but like it isn't as dangerous to society. Um, but we have a way of perceiving one as the worst and our most immediate threat. Uh, and we see like regulations like as a paperwork thing and it doesn't really count, you know. This, similarly, the, the paperwork white collar crimes that were committed that literally caused a financial crisis, right? No one went to jail for the 2008 crisis. Oh, wow. Even though people did that. <laughs> now, Feasance did that. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, and and it's complicated. The, the, like, the legal reasons why that is that way is it is complicated. And I understand that, like, if you believe in the legal system and you don't just want anarchy and chaos, it constrains you in ways that are annoying and doesn't always make sense and is frustrating, right? But essentially, if the public wanted it and we fought hard enough, we could make that kind of stuff illegal. It could be a crime and those people could go to jail. One of the challenges is not necessarily will, it's that the complexity makes it hard for people to see that and fight for it, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to blame people as a whole for that. That's, I don't want it to sound that way. I just mean that, mostly what I mean is that it is insane to me that we live in a society in which everything Jeffrey Bezos does that is exploitative and allows him to amass a, a fortune that is so large, even just within the pandemic itself, that could essentially fund like a global vaccination effort. Um, that somehow that is legal, but all of this other kind of petty shit isn't, is, I just, <laughs> it just is insane, and it doesn't have to be that way, is really my point. That This is a roundabout way of getting to it. Uh, we can get into it. I'm trying to be concise, because I think I'm, is a self-defeating thing, because um, I know I don't want to go on a rant on your podcast, but I think it's also making it harder for me to get to my point, so I'm sorry. I can tell I'm not explaining it well. Uh, we'll have, okay. let's have a whole chat about it sometime. Oh, you are explaining it phenomenally. I, yeah. I hate him so much. The Atlantic <laughs> did a fascinating and disturbing profile on him. It's maybe not last summer, but the summer before. His big old bald head is on the cover of the magazine. And essentially, <laughs> it talks about how his life's dream from the time he was, like, in high school is to colonize space. He's always wanted to colonize space. That is why he started Amazon. That, that is his raison d'etre. Like, that is what he's doing. That's his whole thing. And he's serious about it. He's not kidding. I personally think that is terrifying. I really don't think that it's normal or healthy for a person to have, like, a goal when they're 18 and then still have exactly that goal when they're in their 40s. That is nuts. Um, and he has somehow, and certainly not through his own hard work, amassed resources to, to at least almost get himself into space. Which, which I, I thought was so interesting. Did you see that when he did that, he made that comment about how Amazon workers and customers paid for that? They made it possible? Did you see that? No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He, oh, he, my God. He thanked them. He was like, thank you, Amazon employees and customers. You paid for this. You made this possible, which I have thoughts about. First and foremost, we know. Like, we know, Jeff. We're aware. <laughs> and second, I feel like that is evidence that Jeff Bezos has no friends. Um, if Jeff Bezos had friends, one of them would have told him not to say shit like that in front of other people. They'd be like, Jeff, we know what you mean. You can say that to us, but don't say that in public, man. Like, <laughs> and the fact that he said that in public tells me he has no friends. <laughs> and oh also, God. he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Like, he yeah. is aware you know, there's all this fighting about, like, unionizing efforts for Amazon and whether or not the working conditions for the delivery drivers are reasonable and a $15 minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you can fund from your corporation's profits a egotistical, like, narcissistic little space project that, by the way, um, 
We've done that already. The Russians did yeah. that in like the sixties. Okay, like chill. It's not even that impressive. Um, I mean, it is, but like, why? You know, like if you can amass that much money to this vanity project that achieves nothing and gives the world nothing, we learned nothing from doing that. Then, like, just pay people, give them more breaks. You know, like, just come on and pay them more than $15 an hour if they have to work in, you know, huge warehouses all day and maybe give them air conditioning and, like, don't track their movements all day by a robot and then fire them if they spend more than 10 minutes in the bathroom, yeah. like, just, you know, twice a day, you know, like, totally. I mean, like, in a span of a day, they have to go to the bathroom twice. You're, like, that's crazy. That happens because he knows that people are economically desperate and... He just has, like, a never-ending resource of labor, and when those people leave, he'll just get somebody else, um, and all of it will serve his little space project, and he knows it, and he knows it. Yeah. You know? He's an evil villain, and he should be in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I was at a birthday party today, and uh, they were talking about the decorations that they got, and it was, uh, my my niece Briley is obsessed with pandas right now. So she had cool, a panda cool, birthday. Cool. I feel like you rolled your eyes when you said that. Why? They're cool. <laughs> no, no, no. Let her like pandas things. are awesome. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> pandas are great. They are great. So she has like a bunch of panda decorations. And my aunt was telling me, she was like, you know, we've just found the stuff on Amazon. And it's like, she's like, there is, if it's not on Amazon, it doesn't exist. And it's like that mindset right there for like the average person i don't know if he'll ever be able to be stopped we are we are so dependent on amazon right now mm -hmm. he did that on purpose that was a purposeful effort on his part too this was the plan yeah yeah i get so much stuff from amazon like I, do you still buy things on amazon i avoid it as much as i possibly can but like can you even avoid it that's the thing I am willing to endure a substantial amount of inconvenience to avoid it because I hate him. Uh, but but I, I did watch this movie. I mean, I did watch the movie on Amazon Prime because that's like the only oh place to get it. That never oh, even clicked shit. for me. Oh, I had now. oh I had discomfort about it. Uh, I only have Amazon Prime because I really wanted to see. I really wanted to watch. What the Constitution means to me, and literally the only place to watch it is Amazon Prime. So I was like, okay, but I'm not happy about it. Um, <laughs> and, and if you can find, if I can like find things that I need uh, anywhere else, then I will do that. But to be honest, I sometimes feel like there's only a marginal difference between getting something from Amazon and getting it from like Target, right? Like it's true, yeah, complicated. We only have so many options. I will say that like. People who buy stuff on Amazon, a lot of people don't have that many other options. And like you said, they're intentionally collapsing the sort of alternatives available to us. Um, I, yeah. I do I do think it can't hurt for us to try not to if we can help it. Um, <laughs> like, I don't really want to I don't really want to fund his little vanity space rocket. I don't know anyone who was excited about those launches. So it's like back to back those two bajillionaires who launched their little vanity projects. I don't know anyone who cared or was happy about it. Everyone felt like it was grim. And I feel like that is in great contrast to how we feel about literally anything else NASA does ever. You know? Yeah. yeah. NASA oh my does God, stuff yeah. that is much, like, smaller. And all of it's hard, right? Like, I'm not trying to – NASA's, like, the shit. I'm not trying to make it sound it's not a big deal. But, like, incremental little things that NASA does, everyone's, like, losing their shit about it and is so pumped. Uh, and then these rockets happen and we're like, ugh, gross. <laughs> Just feed the hungry and stop it, you know? 
in the middle of a global pandemic. Like, yeah, it's just yes. Why don't you just like pub- unbelievable? Uh, just like fun public efforts, please. The other thing that's infuriates about this, and honestly, I could do like a three-hour rant about this. I'm so mad. I I read oh, I read a lot of nonfiction, sometimes about the economy. Uh, Mariana Mazzucato writes some fantastic work about like the public sector. Um, she wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial State, and uh, the short version is that like the public tends to think that stuff that happens in the private sector is like the innovation, all the innovative stuff private companies do. And just the public sector, the government is bad at doing stuff. They're inefficient and they're bad at doing stuff. And she's like, mm, no, it's not true. It's basically the thesis that, that she's like, that's not true. And a lot of stuff that we think is the result of private industries being innovative is actually largely publicly funded. All of the technology that makes an iPhone work is the result of technology the taxpayers paid for. Wow, yeah. Bluetooth and touchscreens and Siri Damn. is like a, a, like kind of the next generation of technology that public grants funded. Wow. Google is um, the sort of 2.0 version of a publicly funded project. And there are endless, endless examples of this. Pharmaceuticals are a fantastic example of this. I highly recommend watching Katie Porter grill the CEO of AbbVie about that. Pharmaceutical companies take a lot of money and data from efforts that are publicly funded, and then they reinvest very little of those profits that they get from selling the drugs based on that science um, into further research, and yet continue to jack up the prices of drugs, defending it by saying that like the research and development is expensive, but that's not what they're spending their money on. So like it's a myth, right? Jeez. So, like, that makes yeah. me not much more mad. Like, people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, a lot of what makes their uh, companies function is actually publicly funded, but they're also just, like, exploiting everybody for their own gain and then lying about it, and I hate them very much. <laughs> uh, and I, it's, it doesn't get into it that much, right, in ZomCon, right? But, like, in, or I mean, in Fido with ZomCon, it doesn't dig into that a whole lot, but, like, you can see some of the realities that we see of, like, what it is like to live in a world where a corporation is the government and you literally have no other options. It's not appealing. It looks idyllic and perfect because we're in the 1950s and everything looks like it's nice. And a little like, well, landscape streets and stuff, there are little parks and everybody pretends to be so nice. But like also if you do anything that this guy doesn't like, you have to live with the zombies in the wild zone. <laughs> and you have no protections. Who's gonna protect you? You have no appeal process, you have nothing. Right. It's craziness, which is, a, a Tangentially, I know I can go on a rant about lots of things. I'm sorry. I just get so upset about injustice. <laughs> I'm indignant all the no, time. Don't apologize. We are eating it up. I just—it's not the point of your show, and I'm sorry. That's okay. No, we love I, it again. It's amazing. Just, I love Absolutely it. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, wow. I heart big government <laughs> is the takeaway. I'm mad at it sometimes, but. <laughs> Do you think of Jeff Bezos? Uh, used his money to fund a vaccine and called it the Amazon vaccine, more people would get it. Because I bet you I know a lot of people that would get an Amazon vaccine rather than like a Pfizer or a Moderna that they've never heard of. Well, I don't know. I guess maybe I would want to see like some some data on like what it is right now that's making people uh, hesitant. Um, Stupidity? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that that's helpful. I mean, like I'm frustrated with anti-vaxxers also, but to be honest, I don't think that's the whole story. And I mean, like emotionally, I'm with you, but like, although I think it presents like stupidity, I think ultimately the problem is mistrust. 
And I think there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, and I think that there's been a lot of misperception. Like, I think a lot of people have had the assumption that, for example, black people have not been getting vaccinated because they don't trust the government because of, you know, a long history of, well, of bad experiences that would make it justified to feel oh, that way. having every right to not trust the government. But data <laughs> has come out since then. And I thought, that, I mean, that's a plausible narrative. But data has come out recently that shows that that is not the fact. And then proportionally... Black people are outpacing white people and uh, Latino people in getting vaccinated. They are they are signing up um, at higher rates than other wow. racial groups are. Um, and so that is that is you know we we were wrong. Um, and you know black people who who are reluctant to get vaccines for that reason, it's like mm-hmm. they're not wrong to feel that way. Yeah. Um, although to those people, I would say look at who is taking the vaccine. They're powerful people with resources um, who are taking it, and if they're doing it. Yeah. They're not conducting medical experiments on you, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. If if Goldman Sachs is requiring their employees to get it, I think you can feel pretty confident that it is not any sort of medical experiment where you're being exploited. So I respect that that hesitation, but I think it need not apply, perhaps in this instance. Um so you know, so some of our kind of assumptions that we've had about what is making people reluctant have been have been wrong, but it does definitely seem mis seem to be mistrust. It's just sort of why and how. It's, of course, being encouraged yeah. and exacerbated by people like Tucker Carlson, <laughs> who also, I feel, cannot possibly have any friends, um, because if he did, they would tell him that that stupid face he makes, that I think he thinks, because he's listening thoughtfully, makes him look like a moron. Um, if he had any friends, someone would have told him that. Uh, but he continues to do it, which tells me he has no friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm generally not inclined to say mean things about people, but there there's a handful of people I'm I'm not apologetic. Mitch McConnell's on the list also. Uh, you know. Oof. Anybody who has as much money as Mark Zuckerberg uh, and does things as evil as Tarko Carlson, you know, okay, I'll dunk on them. <laughs> but 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 so why are people mistrusting the vaccines, right? And we don't have super clear answers on all of it. A lot of it is certainly that for reasons that are complex, conservative politicians are encouraging them to be suspicious. There's also, I think, a lot of identity happening, right? Like a lot of identity questions about like freedom. If you believe in freedom, then you don't want the vaccine kind of stuff. And that is a framework that is being manufactured and and perpetuated for political reasons, um, which is disgusting and dangerous. It's not that unreasonable that it is winning people over. I think it's exploiting, you know, sort of something that's very fundamental in our human nature. And if, like, that seems like a, fe- a far-fetched idea to you, I just encourage you to study Nazi Germany and the Nuremberg trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a lot of work. Hannah Arendt writes about this. And I, I apologize, I can't remember his name, but there was a psychologist who worked with the, the first group of war criminals who were tried, um, the sort of most prominent group in Nuremberg. Um, he spent a long time, like, interviewing them uh, leading up to the trials. And he ultimately came to the conclusion that there was nothing unique about their psychology, right? That these were not, in a psychological sense, these people were not fundamentally different from other people. You know, that they were, in terms of their mental health, relatively like almost anyone else, which raises the uncomfortable reality that a normal person can do these things. You know, in in, this, in, a, in an environment like that, if the situations are right, uh, it isn't that people who do these things are monsters, it's that people can do monstrous things, right? Yeah. So, like, it, it's just important to keep in mind that, like, people who do things that are that evil are not separate from us. 
Um, and so <laughs> I think there's just sort of a playing on, and also how easy it is to persuade stuff, the crazy stuff, um, dangerous ideas are normal. Like human beings have demonstrated a capacity to normalize these kinds of things relatively easily and quickly and with very little like hesitance, you know, it, it isn't that people didn't realize that bad things were happening is that they did not think that they were that bad, right? Like a lot of people thought they were justified or necessary for like our national security or, you know, there's a lot of talking about what happened, like the Holocaust in particular, like it was a uniquely horrific, gruesome event that is like outside of the kind of behavior human beings are capable of. And I don't think that that is true. Obviously, I agree that it was a horrific thing. I think it was only unique in the sense that it was sort of um, efficient in a factory type way, right? That it was this, this sort of um, manufacturing line way of, of committing mass yeah. murder. But that actually um, things like that happen all the time, often. Human beings have demonstrated a capacity to do horrific things like this. Just like 15 years before, Stalin starved almost all of Ukraine. He generated a artificial famine for political reasons to punish them and to coerce them into like collectivizing their farms. And he knew what he was doing, right? Like, and the estimates for how many people died vary, but it is comparable to the Holocaust. And I, most people have never even heard of the Holodomor. Like it is insane. It was so bad that Stalin suppressed the census. Uh, they were like, um, never mind, never mind. We didn't do a census this time because it revealed such horrific population changes. The demographic changes it revealed could not be denied. And so they just like tossed it. He just suppressed it. And it's like, we're not talking wow. about this. Never mind. It's fine. Um, so, which is really all just to say, right, that like human beings are vulnerable to certain types of manipulations. Are We have these sort of emotional weaknesses, which isn't an excuse for it. Um, I'm just saying I think that's how we get to a place where, like, people can weaponize these kinds of psychological weaknesses that we have. Um, I do think that, like, the people who respond to them with violence that way are responsible for it. It's, it doesn't absolve them. Um, but I do think that it's important to understand how a phenomenon like that can happen because it does feel so inexplicable. But I, I think that history shows us, and there, there are lots of examples that aren't as, like, extreme, right? But I think those are just, like, obvious ones that we're familiar with and can kind of see. Um, obviously, this is of a slightly less intense scale, and it is a, not as direct. It is, it is an indirect of committee violence against uh, everyone else, um, but it isn't quite the same, you know, so, I, so I'm not trying to suggest they are the same. But we have demonstrated over time, you know, that it's, it's almost formulaic the way you can manipulate people like this. Um, and we've created a political system um, where you can use money to do exactly that. Um, with very little consequences. Um, so I can understand to some extent and empathize with people who become so suspicious of, of the vaccines. I think they aren't understanding it as a question of health and like responsibility to their fellow citizens. Although I have a whole thing about that. Like these people, they probably consider themselves something, um, you know, they identify as like independence and... <laughs> I personally think that conservative politics increasingly um, in the last several years even is just it shows that they just want all the privileges of living in society without any of the responsibilities to the other people in society. I just don't think that they they just want to enjoy a civilized society, but they don't want to have to be made to do anything they don't want to, even if it is really only mildly inconvenient at worst. 
Yeah. Like wearing a mask is really a small price to pay for to live in society. That is really what the subtext of all the freedom stuff is about. But I don't think they're understanding it as a question of like health. Uh, I think it's like an, ide- an identity thing. You know, I think there's like a tribal aspect to it. There's also a lot of fear mongering happening about it. There's all this crazy, it's the gateway to communism kind of stuff, which is insane and stupid, but it scares people. Um, so to, to, to get back to the question you asked, though, like, do I think if there was an Amazon vaccine, if people would use it? I don't know. I think based on everything else, I guess I would need to know first how people feel about Amazon. Like, do they trust Amazon? I feel like a ton of people do. People like it and they use it, but do they trust it? I know a lot of people that would be like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, Amazon's getting it. That'd be cool. That Especially like me. they deliver it to your house and you could do it yourself or some bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly a joke, but like that scares kind me a lot. of not. And that's what's the scariest thing. Like I know people, I'm related to people that I think this would change their mind on. Well, I think you should send those people clips of Elizabeth Warren talking about Amazon. Um, she's, she's, she's very good at explaining stuff in a way that doesn't, she, I think it's her teaching experience. She takes very complicated stuff and uses like a folksy antidote to, uh, to explain it to everyone, which is great. Um, no, no one should trust Amazon. Amazon is mining your data and using its, she has this whole, this was a big thing during the, the democratic primary, this whole thing about like that they are, um, playing baseball and they're also like the umpire right but you can't do both you can do one or the other you can play the game or you can be the umpire but you cannot do both things and they're doing both things so they use all the data they have about like customers shopping trends and the things they search for and whatever all the data they collect while you're browsing and then they use it to essentially squeeze out their competitors no one should trust amazon even if you have to use it you shouldn't trust them like yeah. <laughs> he's just trying to get to mars guys he's just trying to colonize mars that's all he's doing and he doesn't care about any of the consequences of getting there that's it like no literally i'm not exaggerating he literally that's what he's trying to do that's all he's doing he's trying to get money to colonize mars that's the game plan don't trust him he doesn't care about you <laughs> but that said if people <laughs> trust amazon and there was an amazon vaccine then i mean i would not trust it um, but unfortunately, I think we live in like an information ecosystem and culture right now where maybe that would be persuasive to people. I don't know. I sure shit would not, yeah. but. <laughs> I don't know. Not that this is a vaccine podcast, but I'd, I'd do the counter argument that an Amazon vaccine might turn people off of Amazon. If people, because I think Amazon, this mm-hmm. whole Amazon Prime, Prime delivery thing is all about convenience. And if we know anything, People who are anti-vax really don't like to be inconvenienced, especially with the whole mask thing. They also are very resentful of the suggestion that you should get vaccinated. They recently booed Donald Trump when he suggested it, so. Right. So if they know that Amazon is now pro-vaccine, maybe they'll stop using Prime. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to have to deal with this problem because I don't really see um, Amazon ever investing any funds in something that just serves the public and not themselves. So, like, I don't think we're going to have to confront this reality. <laughs> yeah, it's but, true. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of profit in a private industry developing a vaccine, especially at this point where we already have several. Yeah. yeah. So, true. fortunately, this is not a hellish scenario we have to confront. Uh, it, it is an interesting <laughs> hypothetical, though, Nick. I'm actually, this is a very intriguing question. I'm unsure. I appreciate it. I do feel kind of like the answer to that, like if we had some data to kind of use to, to deduce an answer to that. I do think that is a very kind of revealing way to, to confront the situation, you know, like 
Personally, I don't trust it. What does Dr. Fauci say? That's what I want to know. Ask Tony. Uh, does Tony think it's a good idea? Uh, just let that man get back to his AIDS research. He's so tired. Um, oh, poor guy. I mean, he's happy to do his work. You know, I will say part of the reason why I trust Dr. Fauci, I don't know if you watch I mean, he's also brilliant and has worked in public service for a long time. I'm just being frivolous. Um, but I saw him do this great interview. I watched too much C-SPAN and I saw his office and this man has had a very prominent, successful career, right? Like he lives comfortably. He is a genius. He has a home office, you know, uh, but his books were on like these little cheap foldable bookcases. And like he had all these big, heavy tomes like stacked on the floor and it was just craziness. And I was like, that is what, you know, an academic type person's office looks like. I just found it very trustworthy. I was like, yeah. He doesn't have time to be, like, creating an aesthetic bookshelf behind himself for his Zoom interviews. He's got work to do. <laughs> Obviously, I trust him for better reasons than that, but I did find it to be a reasonable credential. I was like, all right, Tony, I see you. Oh. <laughs> if there's, like, and I go back to this all the time. I There are a lot of times in my life where I'm kind of like, what would Sam say? and Or, like, what would Sam do? And um, it's like, I think to me, it is so clear that like doing research and and having the facts in front of you and knowing where to find the right sources is like key to all of this. And I think that's where a lot of people are kind of missing. And I've seen the way that you take notes. I've seen how organized you are. And it's like, I, I would believe anything that you told me. It's true. Like, <laughs> I think it's even, even more than that. I think it really is just that like, um, I'm comfortable in the gray area. I'm, I am not intimidated by not knowing, right? I'm like the idea of saying, I don't know. I'm not scared of it. It's fine. Not knowing stuff is fine. It's perfectly okay to not know stuff. Um, you know, the joy of not knowing stuff is then you learn things right. and then you do know. And that's awesome. That's so great. But a lot of people live sort of like in terror of, I don't know. And for public officials, I, to some extent, understand that. Um, we're not t terribly forgiving of public officials who say they don't know or change their minds, you know. But on an individual level, it seems like sort of an ego thing, in which case, lame. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think it is just that like for, first that I, that I am not really motivated to overstate, right? Like my knowledge or stance on something. I like, am pretty clear on if it's an opinion or if I know a thing, um, and try to be pretty explicit about that. I think some of it is also like my, that I studied philosophy and the logic training that's involved. Um, it's a useful distinction. And then also just that, like, I try to be specific, you know, when I make an assertion, uh, I'm clear that like. I'm not confident that's the right year that this happened, you know, or that like, this is the general takeaway. There are probably, there's nuance to this, you know, but I, that I do a lot of qualifying and it isn't really out of a lack of confidence. I think that sometimes, especially because I'm a woman, I think people assume that's just like a, a lack of personal confidence. Women have a tendency to say things like questions instead of statements, but really it is just that I'm being specific. I'm just being specific about where I am because I just don't want to be an asshole telling people stuff like it's a fact. If I don't know, it's a fact. Not knowing stuff is fine. Preach. And so if I don't know the thing, yeah. I'll just tell you what I, my understanding of it. Absolutely. And then, you know, we live in an age where you can fact check anything fairly easily. Yeah. And so memorizing all the specifics is not the most important part. I also think part of it is just like my strengths in terms of like how my brain works. Like I said, my brother's super good at specifics. He remembers everything. He can like quote stats from a book he read five years ago and he's correct. It's very annoying. He's brilliant. It's 
a little bit disgusting. I'm, I'm just kidding. I love him. It's just like sometimes he says stuff and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. How do you remember that? Um, he's he's like the smartest person I know. It's insane. But like, I'm not good at you that. You would love him, Nick. He sounds awesome. Honestly, everyone does. He's yeah. charming oh, yeah. and charismatic and funny and interesting and the best. Yep. I'm his number one fan. I see him with his kittens all the time. Jackie posts him and the kittens all the time on Facebook. I love yeah, him so but, much. Yeah, but he has a mind for the specifics. He remembers the names and the dates and the, the stats and how many how many soldiers died at the battle of whatever on this day. You know, he remembers all that stuff, and I don't. I don't. I am good at general impressions. I can string a lot of ideas together. Sometimes I feel like when I'm trying to tell somebody about them, it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about because a lot of the details have escaped me. But that isn't the case. Like, the thing I'm saying is correct. It's just, it sounds like I don't know because I'm like, <laughs> the guy, I can't remember his name right now, but he's, you know, he's the guy who did this <laughs> yeah. thing. And he, you know, I do that a lot. And I know, and I know that it creates a sense that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I, I do. I just, <sighs> tip of the tongue. His name will come to me 20 minutes from now when it's not helpful. <laughs> so it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about. But the part that matters, like the guy's name that I've forgotten doesn't change the point of the fact. It just sort of undermines my authority, right? But like the thing I'm trying to tell you is correct. It is true. Just let me look it up in my little book. I probably have a sticky note. It's fine. Uh, and we live in an age where you can just check it. So like, ew. yeah. So, so that is also part of, I think, why Jordan, for example, trusts the things that I say I don't have a track record of ever attempting to deceive you or overstate what I know. If I don't know, I'm just like, I'm not sure. And it's always been that way. And I like, yeah. I so appreciate that. And I think something that's even uh, to go one step further than it's okay to say, I don't know something. It's also saying, okay, I was wrong about this last thing. Here's how to correct that. Or like, I think mm -hmm. that's also a problem. I think that plays into the ego as well is that people nowadays are so dead pressed about not being wrong. Like that is the worst right. thing that someone could be is wrong. And I think that's really toxic and it just. Yeah. I encourage people to challenge that feeling because I have to tell you being wrong mm -hmm. is fun. It's fine. Being wrong is great. When you're wrong, that means you learned a thing you didn't know. And that's awesome. It's time. I think part of it is too, though, that I think some of the resistance about being wrong, I never mind being wrong. I think some people assume because I'm like organized and bookish that I'm like also uptight and a know-it-all and like can't be wrong. Um, but I never feel that way. I don't mind being wrong. I do mind when people attach a lot of significance to the being wrong, that like I am stupid or whatever, right? Like I resent that. I'm not stupid. Literally yeah. no one knows everything about everything. We are all wrong about stuff. There's all lots of stuff we don't know. You can be the world's most prominent expert in a thing and then know shit about another thing. That is just the nature of being a human being with a brain, right? Like, that is just how it works. Yeah. So the idea that there's, like, shame in not knowing a thing or forgetting a thing, right? Like, why? Why? Just, like, chill. Just, like, take a chill. <laughs> I do think it's obviously more complicated, like, public figures. Um, and some of that is just, like, the cost that we make them pay when they change their minds or admit to being wrong. Um, but also sometimes it's, like, it can cause doubt about their credibility or whatever. But socially, just, like, chill. Be nice to people when they're wrong or don't know stuff. And, like, just be chill about it if you're wrong and don't know stuff. And, honestly, just be pumped if someone's explaining a thing to you that you didn't know. You know, it's a gift to be wrong and then learn the other thing. It's the best. It's so fun. All of the things I do know, I started out by not knowing them, right? Like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it, I think, has to do with, like, because of the fact that so much of our lives is now being recorded. Uh, if you are wrong at any given time... That wrongness, even if you've learned, 
can be held against you years later. People have receipts. Yeah. People, you know what I mean? And, and so I think people are very weary about ever messing up because they know that just the -hmm. way that a lot of people live their lives are more in the public eye than they were say even like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Yes. Someday we'll have, let's do another um, podcast episode just for us where we chat about my feelings about presidential elections and the credentials we use to vet them (laughs) versus what you actually need to do for the job. Uh, You know, what is your favorite like presidential movie? Lincoln. Okay. Well then we should do Lincoln next time. And then, (laughs) and then you could talk all about this. Or you could just do it now. I don't care. But in terms of like, you know, what we're, we were talking about, like, in terms of like being wrong and being comfortable not knowing stuff, you know, I already have like, I don't even remember all of the things I've said, but on some of like the tangents um, that are like more political in nature about Jeff Bezos and stuff, like, uh, I'm sure I already feel like low-key uh, self-conscious about them because I probably misstated something or oversimplified them or like didn't express them with a lot of clarity, even though I know what I mean. You know, but I was trying to be brief, which caused me to shortcut things, and I probably missed something and said something in a way that could be, maybe it was unclear or could be misinterpreted or perhaps just outright infactual. I don't think that was true, but it could be. Uh, and I would hope that no one's going to come for me. Like, I I said what I said, and I, I don't think that I said anything untrue. I certainly didn't intentionally. But, like, we do live in a world where people will do that, right? Like, they could just take a recording and punish you for it. I think that what a good thing people should consider themselves is, like, what are the stakes, right? Nothing that I said has high stakes. I'm not a person where, like, those comments are relevant, right? I'm, like, a little old nobody who's just passionate about everything and just thinks too much about stuff. But, like, you know, the fact that I maybe misspoke or wasn't very clear in how I expressed some of these things, like, has no real consequences for anybody, right? So, like, just, like, chill. And also just embrace being wrong. (laughs) Just embrace being wrong sometimes. I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> Any hate mail we get, regardless of who it's to, we um forward to a, another guest whose name won't be spoken anymore on this podcast. I refuse <laughs> to uh, give him any more of my time, but uh, we we forward it to him, so you would never see it anyway. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I don't want to undermine your credibility with your listeners, right? Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, uh, I also fine. like don't want to be spreading misinformation or anything. But I just mean that like it is it is intimidating in a sense to like make assertions in a public sphere, knowing that people like get so worked up about it and that it exists yeah. forever and eternity. I do think that there are, there are pros and cons to all of that. Um, it does also give us accountability in a way that we didn't always have. I think the always being recorded thing as a counterpoint, George Floyd, his trial would not have happened yeah. if it hadn't been filmed. Um, there were a lot of lies being told from the get-go. I think it was... No one was inclined to take it seriously. I think the police narratives about it would have... I mean, even when we had the video, right? Like, there were a lot of really earnest, quite, like, bold attempts to justify and minimize what it was. And, you know, we've all seen it. There's, it's indefensible. I don't know that you could say the outcome was really full justice. It cer- certainly isn't really enough. No. Right? Reform is the only justice, you know. But there wouldn't have been any accountability either which is kind of the minimum, right? But there wouldn't have been any of that without without all the evidence. So it, there are pros and cons to, to living in a, in a world like that. Um, I think it's great. I like the fact that we are able to record so much. I think there are definite benefits to that. Yeah. I, I just understand how people would get scared. I just think maybe we could all be nicer about the smaller stuff. 
like absolutely people were just nicer to each other i mean (laughs) which i to be clear i'm not suggesting necessarily applies to like things like egregiously racist comments right like that is there is no hard and fast blanket rule for it would depend right on the situation how like egregious it is but but i'm not just to be clear like i'm not suggesting we just like be chill about that kind of a thing you know but if like people mistakenly say something or they say something that's not true or it wasn't very sensitive or i feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of being particular about the language that we're using and i think it's hard for a lot of people to keep up there's a lot of sort of punishing people because they used whatever term was yeah. acceptable 10 years ago or something. Like, maybe we could just, like, calm down a little bit about that. Like, a little, just, like, a little bit. To be honest, I think that is also contributing to sort of the alienation that, like, people on the right are feeling, the kind of, like, counterculture alt-right extremists that are being radicalized. Yeah. I think that makes them feel more outside of stuff, like the constantly changing lingo, which isn't to say that, like, using language that is accurate and appropriate and that, like, the people that you're talking about prefer like that is important and it matters uh, but maybe it is not always the most important thing when we're in like life and death situations you know that i think we could maybe be a little more discerning about the cost we want people to pay for those transgressions so that people aren't terrified to say stuff that kind of stuff gets focused on because maybe that's like easier to focus on than the fact that the world is falling apart i don't know i mean mm-hmm. and that sucks in itself that like they do it because it's it's low-hanging fruit yeah oh well this guy said this a long time ago like it's also emotionally satisfying yeah um i think that a lot of I, I feel frustrated in, in like, the political sphere sometimes. Uh, I think that there's a lot of focus on the sort of, like, having the right opinions on things. Um, that, like, you have the most right moral stance on all the issues all the time. You're the most informed and, like, the most woke, air quotes, whatever, all the time. And, I mean, yeah, it's important to, like, do that work, right? To, like, reflect and, and to unlearn some of the sort of racist assumptions we've learned and all like that is important and it's good like if that isn't inherently a bad thing i do think it is problematic when people act like make that the point being the most right is not the point and it accomplishes very little and the constant yelling at the people who are doing the work to turn the being right into action that helps people um yelling at them all the time achieves nothing either right you know nancy pelosi i feel like is an example of this she is not perfect she's a human uh i have complaints um but i do not ever feel like she gets enough credit as she deserves um totally she has she's a substantially more progressive track record than than we like to think um and i also think that what looks like failures on her parts on the outside especially to like very online leftists um, it's just failing to confront the reality of accomplishing things. Like being the most right does not actually matter in terms of passing legislation. What matters when you're trying to pass legislation is having the votes. And she knows how to do that. She knows how to, or at least assess that. She is one of the most skilled people uh, in Congress right now at doing that. I will refer you to uh, her role in passing the Affordable Care Act. She is at least as responsible for that as Barack Obama is. Um, sh- and, like, people are frustrated with her because, like, she's not, you know, she's not AOC. And I don't know that there's that as much distance between her political philosophy in terms of, like, being progressive. And, like, I don't, I don't think AOC and Nancy Pelosi are as far apart as people think. But Nancy Pelosi's job is different. She has to count the votes. Yeah. And absolutely. Being the most right 
begets nothing. It gets you nothing. <laughs> uh, but it feels good to us um, to be like, well, we have the most morally right opinion and you're wrong and we're mad at you. And that feels right and it's easy. The problem is it doesn't help us. And I think, unfortunately, we have to just, I think we just have to confront the discomfort of the compromising and the slow progress and just like the not glamorous work to achieve progress. Uh, I will refer you to everything Stacey Abrams has accomplished. <laughs> Amen. Stacey Abrams accomplished that doing anonymous rolling up your sleeves work that no one cared about quietly for 10 years, right? And by and not entirely by herself, right? But she was like, she didn't do this to be famous. She did this to get shit done. And the stuff she did was not fun. It was registering voters and stuff. And, you know, that is, that is more important than being the most right about all the things. Just, just be wrong Absolutely. and help people. Just, like, Call Stacey and see what she wants you to do. I don't know, but like just <laughs> being right is not helpful. It, it is important to try and to listen and to care, right? Like that's important, but like being wrong is not the end of the world. Not helping is bad. I honestly have more, I have more complaints about people who are just like complaining online and not helping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very political Definitely. tangent for your podcast. It's not the point. I'm sorry. Feel free to cut any of it out. I don't want you to have like, crazy conservative people yelling at you because they just wanted to hear about movies here's the thing let them uh, we let them we're we don't two, care. Oh, God bless we're two gay leftists yeah. uh talking about movies i don't know that we have many uh right-wing fans if we do shout out hi guys but uh i don't i you know they they're quiet at least we don't get a lot of hate mail just about joe oh shit i said his name i'm sorry god uh, okay um <laughs> Oh, for like half a second, I thought you meant like Joe Biden. And I was like, why are people complaining? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I caught that uh, after he, I know I caught that. But at first I was like, what about Joe? Like, what did Joe do to them? <laughs> oh, well, he won the election. What he did to them is fine. No, I caught him. You made a joke. I think it was in the episode with Kimmy for Synecdoche, but you made this joke about like, well, we're just a font of misinformation. And I was like, that's not funny. <laughs> that's not a good joke. In this quiet, Nick, read the room. <laughs> oh, we say that a lot. I mean, we I say that a kidding. lot. I know you're kidding, but that, that was just a reaction I had. I will say the other thing is you're like perpetually teasing Jordan all the time. And I was like, I'm going to go on their show and I'm going to be such a bummer because every time he makes a joke like that, which is like a lot of the humor in the show, I'm going to be like, don't talk about my friend like that. No, but I told you I would be on my best behavior. And look, how many jokes have I made about him? I told you I would be very well behaved. Don't bully my bestie. <laughs> I throw it right back, though. I don't care. No, I can tell you're kidding. But every time he says, I'm like, don't talk to Jordan like that. <laughs> I appreciate that, though. I'm not good at mean humor. I know. Sometimes, like, (laughs) I will make a joke that's, like, kind of premised on the idea that I'm being sassy and mean. And then, like, five seconds goes by, (laughs) and I'm like, that was mean. I'm sorry. That wasn't funny. I took it back. (laughs) Uh, You are too adorable. I love that. I'm just earnest is the problem. I'm earnest. (laughs) I absolutely love that. This has gone on for quite a while, which is not a bad thing whatsoever. Well, most of it has not been about the movie, and I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. And what it's so going to be a six-hour episode. We can use that for take three anyway. But what I'm thinking is, uh, for our Scott Pilgrim episode, we split it up so that take one and take two were published one week, and take three was published the next week. So I think we could just do that here, so we even have more time to mm. like research and stuff. We may not even need to record till next week. That's good. Yeah, I do want to make sure that like since I did go on lots of tangents, I mean I was encouraged, Nick. Nick and I are bad influences on one another. We're never going to stay on topic if Nick and I are here because he's, he's even worse than you, Jordan. He wants to hear all the thoughts I have about everything. And true. Yeah. unfortunately, I never run out of thoughts. I 
I'm always thinking about things. So you should run your own podcast. I was just about to, to say, oh my god, what time? we want to come be guests on your podcast. <laughs> Do you know how much time all of this reading and thinking takes? Have you seen my bookshelf? <laughs> <laughs> it takes up all my okay, time just to this. digest all these thoughts, man. I would, <laughs> I would religiously listen to a podcast put out by you. I like see. That. So yes. I should just like just publish them so you can listen to whatever it is that's like rolling around in the back of my brain this week. Oh please, yeah. Like this week's Absolutely. obsession. Like, this week, I'm obsessed with this random one thing that I read, and I can't stop thinking about it. I mean, let's hear it. I Let's feel like it. there were some jokes about the Lincoln thing, and your listeners won't know. So just context. The, uh, I am obsessed with Abraham Lincoln. I'm convinced he's our most precious president. I am happy to explain why to anyone who's curious. And it all started because I read, like, a one sentence in, like, an article in The New Yorker or something. It was not really the point. It was just this one little sentence in an other essay about how he loved cats. Aww. And I was like, that is hilarious. Is that true? Uh, so then I looked it up, uh, and I read a book about Lincoln to fact check this. It is true. Um, he loved cats in particular and all animals. I know at least five great anecdotes of Abraham Lincoln being so nice to animals uh, that I'm happy to share. Maybe I'll start a podcast just so everyone can just just a series of cute Abraham Lincoln stories. Um, he's just like the best <laughs> listen, human being there. to ever Absolutely. be the president. He's a little cutie. And I'd edit them for you. If you wanted to <laughs> record them, I would put them. You are a, so nice. Absolutely. We could take over the production of it. Yeah. So, so I read a book to fact check if this was true. And uh, as I read that book, I was like, oh, I, and I knew like a little bit about Lincoln. I knew sort of as much as anyone does, but not a whole lot. And I was never particularly interested in like the Civil War era and like presidents, you know? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can kind of see why. People find Lincoln so compelling. Like, people are obsessed with him. They love him so. The people who love Lincoln, like, love him. And I was like, I kind of get that. But I was like, what's the catch, though? There's, like, no criticisms on here. There's nothing here that makes him look a little bit bad or, like, he made a mistake. And I was suspicious of it. So I read another book. And there was still nothing. And I read another book. And still, there was nothing. Uh, and next thing you know, I read nine uh, books about Abraham Lincoln. And that is how this started. Uh, and so, that anecdote, I feel like, explains a lot about me as a person. And uh, which is also why it's a bad idea for music to hang out. Because you'll never <laughs> discourage me from going on whatever tangent has occurred to me at that moment. <laughs> I have thoughts about everything. You know, there may be like a few topics that like I probably don't have a lot to say about. Like, don't talk to me about soccer. I have no thoughts about it. I don't care. I don't care. Like, Amen. Welcome to the good club. Good people who like That's... it, right? But like, I just have nothing to say. You know. Samantha, the first time that we ever met, uh, I sat in a diner <laughs> for like I think we were. It was like for three hours, and a wait. lot of that was you telling us yeah. about Abraham Lincoln. Well, you asked and before. <laughs> Before, it was beautiful. I loved it. I had a blast. Yeah, we did bring that up in take one. And I'm so sorry because I've been there twice now, or at least twice, maybe three times. What is that diner called? It is called the Paper Moon Diner. Is it still there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's restrictions oh. because of COVID like anybody else, right? But but yeah, they're thriving and fabulous. Excellent. Good to hear. Fantastic. I love them. Everyone in the area should come check it out. I mean, wear your mask and you get vaccinated, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we sung its praises in, uh, in take one. And all the people yeah, who work there good. are very nice. Yes. Aww. <laughs> but but yeah, I I feel like bef- since we did go on lots of tangents about all the things, although we should just like talk more often to just talk about stuff. No one ever wants to hear about whatever I'm upset about this week. Uh, so we should just. I would love that. I'll tell you whatever. Just just give me a random topic and I'll just thoughts. Oh, just, I love it. Just like free <laughs> associate, you know. 
Um, but I don't <laughs> want to to miss a chance to hear more about what you guys thought about the movie, right? And like, I guess maybe what you thought the major themes were, or kind of what the filmmaker was trying to tell you. But like, you guys are the movie people. Yeah, like immediately again, like I feel I felt like this could go in so many different directions, and I, I wasn't really sure which one the movie was trying to say. And I'll bring up one that actually kind of confused me. There was it was the moment when Fido was tied up outside. And he glanced up at Tammy and I forget his name, but the neighbor that has Tammy. Yeah. He looks up at them and he's obviously having his sexual time with her. And then he looks down at his own window and it's like quiet and the lights are off. And at first I was led to believe that we weren't supposed to like Mr. Theopolis, that like his whole thing was that women should obey you and they should keep their mouth shut. Like that was sort of the vibe that I was getting from him. That I think that was the aspect of this 50s suburban that he was supposed to like suburban life that he was supposed to portray. But, but in that scene, it almost seems like it was praising that it was. And then looking down at, at this broken family about this husband who doesn't really care about his wife or anything. And I think that part confused me. And it was sort of parts like that, that I was kind of like, what is this movie saying? I truly don't know what I'm trying to get here. Do you think maybe he was like, I want that. I want love. But was it love that? that Because I mean, I feel like he and Tammy had. Well, I want, I mean, he might've just seen it as that. Like he might've seen them as being sexual. And then also he's like, Oh, I miss the, I miss the intimacy of being with somebody. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I, I got to tell you, the way I felt about this movie was I was like, kid movie, kid movie, kid movie that's saying a lot of things that are not kid friendly. And then the necrophilia happened and I was like, okay, well, (laughs) this is definitely not the kid movie I was thinking going into it. The wholesomeness deceived you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It just... I don't know. I, I feel like, again, I, I really do want to watch it again because what it was trying to say, I think maybe got a little bit bogged down in trying to be funny in some bits and weird in some bits. Like, <laughs> I was also left unsure how to feel about that dynamic. I think it is okay for it to be complicated, right? Like, I don't think we necessarily have to decide to like or not like Mr. Theopolis. Like, people are complicated. Um, uh, I, th- I mean, there's, there's some complicated questions going on there, right? Like one of my first thoughts in response to what you said, Jordan, was to describe that it is a companionship, you know, that like Mr. Theopolis has a companion, but then, uh, the next thought I had was like, I'm not sure that's a fair way to characterize it because there's not a lot of agency on Tammy's part, right? Like that she doesn't have much of an option. Yeah. Um, it almost seemed to me in, in the scene, you can just see their silhouettes, right? When, when you, we see them yeah. together in their bedroom, but it seems to me that he probably, cause she was chained, right. And it looked like she was trying to like bite him. Uh, and so what I guessed is that he had like deactivated her collar and is, he yep. is somehow attracted to like the fact that she wants to eat him. I don't know. The Good danger. Him, of I guess. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. And we don't kink shame here <laughs> in theory, right? Like that, and of course, I think the movie raises questions about this, but in theory, we're supposed to think that like when the zombies' collars are, de- are deactivated, right? Like they're just driven by this desire for human flesh and like, that's it. And they can't really control themselves and it's just like this insatiable need and there's no there's no thinking, there's no feeling, there's just trying to eat humans. Um, and so I think there raises complicated questions about Tammy's role in that moment in terms of like consent, for example, right? Like is she a willing participant yeah. in the sexual fantasy? I don't know. Exactly. Um, yeah. Although and there's just... also mention that 
was she like underage or something that she was like super young when she died and that's how he got her i would like sure hope she wasn't a minor but it's not clear she could be um i i just think that what's appealing i think mr theopolis is a, a complicated character especially his relationship with tammy i think i i also feel a little bit emotionally on that but I think as a character, what's appealing about him, and I think maybe what you were sort of referring to when you're like, I think we were supposed to like him, or are we not supposed to like him, is that he is not putting on a facade the way all the other characters are. He is like not pretending. Is, yeah. He's not hiding. I mean, he is hiding a little bit, right? Because he doesn't want everyone to know he can tinker with the collars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, like, he's just doing his thing and, and is like not faking it, right? He is not as... He's not as imprisoned by these sort of like social expectations. He's just being weird and doing it pretty publicly. And it's refreshing. Um, and he's honest. And I think that makes us trust him more because he isn't faking it all the time, even though he is doing this sort of like morally questionable thing. And it's a gray area. I'm actually not, like I said, I'm, uh, I don't know where I feel in it. it. It makes me uncomfortable, but like a lot of things about the situation are uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's okay. I think it's okay to just sit with the discomfort. I don't think we have to explain it away or condemn it. I think we can just be uncomfortable with it, um, especially because it is fiction. Um, but That's a very good point. Uh, yeah. I think it's interesting to just engage in the questions about our discomfort around it. Um, but yeah. but I, I, I think that he's an appealing character because he isn't pretending, whereas everyone else is, like, so obsessed with, like, especially Helen. I think she's the most obvious example. She is so concerned about what people think of her all the time. And, Absolutely. you know, everyone is just really constrained. I also think, like, in a way that is familiar to us in terms of the sort of, like, this version of 1950s suburbia, right? Just, like, the constraints and the social expectations and the sort of faking it. Like, everything is fine. We're separate lives and it's okay kind of a thing. Like, we're, we're familiar with that sort of suffocating circumstance and sort of the, the culture of that being so suffocating. Uh, and he's just like, meh, no thanks. Uh, I'm just going to do me. Yeah. It's kind of hard not to be like, well, you go for it, dude. Yeah, I, I just think that like in in this in this context, it, it was just sort of like, what is this movie doing? Like, it, I, there were so mm-hmm. many moments that I was just like, I don't know Raising what this questions. is trying to do. Yeah, it's distracting from any sort of main point that it may be trying to portray. To me, at least, I was hmm. wrapped up in that aspect of it, and then violence against children. I mean, I'm a horror movie buff. I've seen worse things on camera but i was like if you're trying to make some sort of point i think you're kind of getting Mm. in the way of it a little bit well maybe the point is raising all these questions right like making ourselves ask what is the nature of the relationship between mr theopolis and tammy and what does it make you feel you know like maybe that's part of the point do you think the filmmaker knows the answers though because if they don't then like i don't know that kind of pisses me off i feel Tammy's an interesting example, right? So for most of the film, it, it just raises these questions. We no real answers about the dynamic between them. Even in the scene where Mr. Theopolis is driving them to like the containment center because they have this plan, right, um, to get Fido, and Tammy's with them, and he makes this joke about. So Timmy asks Mr. Theopolis, like, isn't he worried that Zonkon will take Tammy away from him? And he makes this joke about how if that happens, he'll just get another one of the same model. And he laughs in the way, like, gross men like that will do. Um, And Tammy is clearly annoyed and or hurt by that comment, which is interesting. She did not appreciate that. Um, And it's a muted response because she's a zombie and they have sort of limited 
expression and, and whatnot, but, like, she didn't like it, and you can tell. Whether she didn't like it because she is also attached to him, um, or just because it was an annoying-ass thing for a man to say, undetermined, to be honest. Um, but there were also all these questions throughout the film, like, his attachment to her, right? Is it just that, like, she's a young woman, uh, who he doesn't have to have any sort of real emotional connection with? Um, that's appealing to him? Like, could she just be swapped out for any other attractive zombie? Um, was my question. And when he made that joke, I was like, is he being serious or is he just saying that? And then when she gets shot, yeah. he loses his yep. shit and he's like, my Tammy! Yep, yep. And he tackles the guy. And I was like, okay, well, it is about her specifically, apparently. So it, it doesn't yeah. give us any more insight into, like, Tammy's experience, really, right? Like, the, the moment in the car where she's annoyed is ambiguous it could be a few things right like it could just be that he's being an annoying man uh i relate but like or she's like hurt that he said that the scene where she gets shot also raised interesting questions for me in terms of like how zombies experience pain right because like she gets shot sort of right at the top of her head so like it isn't like fatal for her as a zombie um but she did get shot in the head and she seems she like is stunned for a second and then she just like sort of comes back and is fine but also a pretty crucial component to using the, the like, domestication collars or whatever to control the zombies is that they, like, shock them and it hurts them and controls their behavior. And I was still feeling, like, so, like, they don't really care about getting shot, but, like, a little electricity is enough to, like, constrain them. I don't know. I'm a hmm, pothole. I'm not sure. <laughs> but maybe someone who knows more about <laughs> zombies could explain this to me. But I found that to be a little confusing, like... She, she was not hindered at all with being shot in the head, but, like, you shock him in the collar, and Fido is, like, obviously really uncomfortable and, you know, immediately going to acquiesce. So, like, That's a great point. Yeah. Sure. I'm overthinking it, probably. Sometimes movies will set up rules and then not follow them. You know, introduce you to an alternate reality and then not follow follow the laws that govern that alternate reality. That's not nitpicking. That is completely relevant to bring up because if you're a filmmaker, you know, trying to basically world build, then you need to establish a set of rules and follow them. I will concede that I think the scene where like Bill is using a shot collar on, on Fido, the point of it was probably not so much demonstrating like the reality of like being a zombie and sort of how they control them. I think the point of that scene was probably more about Bill's glee as he did it. Um, and the joy he took in yeah. cruelty and the power of it. And I, I will grant the filmmakers that. And I think that the point probably of the scene where Tammy gets shot like that is not about like the, the sort of reality of what that injury would, would do to her as much as it was what it revealed about Mr. Theopolis, right? So like yeah, I concede, I concede, I like I can take a chill pill about it, but I did notice and had questions. <laughs> I do think having uh, so many discussion points in this movie is not necessarily a bad thing. No, I, I don't think either. it is. But I will say it was like considering all of this and considering there is so much packed in this movie, this movie was an hour and a half and it was so easy to watch. Like mm-hmm. I could watch this again very easily. It's not something that I feel like yeah. uh, would be like an assignment or like something I would have to put uh, time or energy into watching one evening. It was very easy to watch and it was fun to watch. So that aspect of it, I think, is very impressive. Um, especially, especially considering the I, nature of the themes, right? Yeah, ex- yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I tried looking up the, the filmography of this director. He had done like maybe four before this and none of them mm-hmm. I'd even heard of. I don't know. It was just it, it was this was an, a very interesting experience for me. It was it was a very unique 
movie to watch. I mean, yes, wholeheartedly, I agree. I also think that a lot of it was fairly clever, even if not particularly nuanced, right? Like, a lot of what they're doing is, yeah. like, not subtle. You know, like, the <laughs> sort of boy and his dog Lassie sequence, like, pretty yes. hard to miss. <laughs> I have never yep. seen Lassie. I have not seen that many boy and his dog movies. I know of them, and I recognize that trope, though, right? That's, yeah, that's the trope. Like, it's the whole, like, it, and his name is Timmy. Like, Timmy's stuck in yeah, the well. Timmy, yeah, like is Timmy dog. in trouble? Exactly. With a collar exactly. that shocks him when he misbehaves. Yep. He's tied yep. up in the backyard. Like, yeah, you know, the dog, they play, they play fetch, basically. Like, the dog references, not subtle. I also thought um, the scene where Mrs. Henderson uh, attacks him and when she becomes a zombie and then we see this like zoomed out silhouette of like in front of a big moon of the big moon yeah of Tommy like or Timmy I'm sorry beheading her with a shovel i feel like that was a, an allusion to something i do not know what it was but like i recognized something about that that i feel like this is someone who watches more like old timey scary movies or whatever or zombie films would be like i know what that is but i feel like that was another sort of Lassie type reference so like whatever the equivalent is I don't know what it is an allusion to but I was like I see this is the thing and it's on purpose it was a very different style from all the other shots mm -hmm. right yep it was not subtle I don't know what it was I don't know enough but like I saw it well that's what take three is for so good I hope something to I hope someone will be able to tell me but it's, 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 like it wasn't really that subtle I also feel like they were pretty explicit about some of the themes you know and in a way that was so flip at times, there's a part where, like, Helen is driving with Bill, and she was like, just because your father tried to eat you does not mean we all have to be unhappy forever. I wrote that down as <laughs> right, well. Helen. That was one of the quotes I wanted to bring up. That was hysterical. Okay, Helen, you tell him. She's not wrong. <laughs> and then there's something so interesting about that, like, you know, so, so here is this, like, living human man who's alive, right? But all he can think about is funerals. All he can think about like you pointed out, even when he finds out he's having a new baby, he's like, but I can't afford a funeral for another baby. Uh, he's not even happy and was oblivious to it. All of his neighbors knew she was pregnant before he did. And he was still just like, but the funerals. Um, and then you have Fido, who is so limited um, in terms of the way he can express things. Um, but I think to the audience, he comes across as more present, right? He responds to Helen in a way that Bill doesn't. He tries to sort of like dance with her in that one scene and he expresses like contentment and, and he just like kind of hangs out with them and he's happy right like he has fun washing the car with them and you know yeah he is more part of that family and participating in their life as a family than bill is which yes absolutely. begs the question like how different are the zombies from people you know what is it to be alive what is it to be a person? Mm -hmm. What is death really? If, like, you're not living when you are alive, then, like, what's the big deal about dying, honestly? Like, <laughs> you spend your whole life obsessed about a funeral, then, like, why are you so scared about dying? Just, uh, well, that's what you've been preparing for. <laughs> and what a waste it is, you know, that, like, you have yeah. a life and you're just going to spend it all worrying about the end of it. Or you could, like, I don't know, not do that and love your wife. Just, like, a thought. Yeah. And it also raises interesting questions about, like, their emotional experience, because obviously Fido, like, he sort of coos at the baby at the end, and it's just obviously content, right? And all he does is sort of, like, lean back and look up at the sun and have, like, a sort of, like, a groan noise he can make. But like, you can tell he's happy, and we never see Bill do that. If anything, Bill's, like, sneaking out of the house with his golf clubs, terrified his son will spot him and want to play baseball. Like, 
some life. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Congrats. the American dream. Well, also, he's terrified yeah. of bonding with them because they eventually will become zombies and he might have to behead them and he can't emotionally cope with that possibility. So he lives Very with true. them and ultimately we see that he does love Timmy because despite his, like, debilitating fear of zombies, he, like, you know, comes through in the end to protect him and I believe ends up becoming a zombie as a result. But, uh, <laughs> but in the end, he, like, really comes through. So, like, all this time, it seems like you, he's trying so hard to resist being attached to him. And he does all this, like, he gives sort of the speech about what it is to be a good parent. He's like, I think it's when he's driving with Helen, and he was like, oh, the fact that he's so attached to this zombie is sort of a proof I'm a bad father and I failed him. But, like, I've never tried to eat him. My dad tried to eat me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm that bad of a dad. I've never tried to eat Timmy. Uh, and, like, that's his standard, you know? He's like, yeah. I'm not that attached to him, and I never tried to eat him. I'm a good dad. I bought him a little handgun. What more do you want from me? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, but then at the end, you know, he comes through, which is sort of confusing, and honestly, I don't quite know what, like, to make of that. Clearly, he, he couldn't fully resist atta being attached to him. He did love him enough um, to sacrifice his life in a way that was, like, his worst possible fear, which is, you know, which, again, brings me back to how is that fence sufficient? I don't understand it. <laughs> no, real, no realistically right so like i don't i don't know the physical i don't know the physical reality of like being a zombie but it seems to me that the reality at least the movie sets up is that uh, the zombies don't like they don't have a lifespan they just are alive forever unless you destroy their brain by like shooting them or beheading them right but like they don't like get old and die right they already are dead so they just exist like in perpetuity they're just there right that that seems to be yeah, the reality it sets seems up like to it. Me. okay well 90 percent mm -hmm. of the population is turning into zombies. And in theory, not that many of them can, have, can be domesticated, right? Like, you figure the, the majority of them are being put into the wild zone, right? Yeah. So how is it that there is not at all times a huge mass of zombies crowding that <laughs> fence because they're trying to get at the people to eat them? Like, they know where they are. And in the scene where we first see the fence, right, like, the guy, Mr. Bonas, is, like, taking Timmy out. And, like, you see, like, they're starting to approach the fence. But, like, that's crazy. They would already be there. That doesn't make any sense. They would be at all times. They'd be at the fence. Yeah. And there would just be, like, an exponentially growing number yeah. of them. I don't understand yeah. this. Maybe we're just not supposed to think about it that much. I don't know. I think, yeah, and I think, I think, because it, it also, it raises so many questions, like, is this happening in the rest of the world? Like, is ZomCon... Is at least all like, of America, it looks over? like. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, if it's cosmic radiation, it'd be the whole planet, right? Like... That's, yeah, yeah. that's what, that's, that's kind of my understanding of it, but, um... Yeah, just, I, I just, like, the numbers don't check out. I don't understand. No. <laughs> this is so much no. fun. <laughs> I actually um, kind of thought it was an interesting metaphor for, like, the corporate greed, you know? I think that sometimes about, like, the, the way corporations are destroying the planet, like oil and gas companies that are causing climate change, right? Like, that is a short-term profit ultimately destroying the whole planet. And I kind of feel like ZomCon is doing that, right? Like, exponentially growing the number of zombies means they will overwhelm you, and you cannot win in the end, right? It seems like long-term, not a good plan. Which feels fitting, yeah. I don't know. I will say, I not that I want to cut this short, but uh, I am testing the limits of my garage band right now, and my biggest fear is of it crashing and us losing all of that. So, did we have any like final thoughts before we get into take three? 
Okay, so how do you feel about people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and no, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> we, we Bill Gates that. isn't as straightforwardly evil as the as the other examples, um, but problematic. <laughs> he does a lot of good public health research though. Or funds a lot of it. Oh well good. Good for him. Good for you, Bill. But uh, there is no ethical way to be a, a billionaire, so <laughs> we talked about that a little bit and just how rich the top ten richest people are who are all men in the world and like just how unbelievably wealthy they are and it was just ugh, it's it's sick yeah i feel like i did all the talking this episode so i will defer to you all in closing comments i apologize no it's that's why uh, you're here it's that it's, is 100 percent why you're here <laughs> absolutely we were hoping that you would do a lot of talking this is wonderful oh good you had realistic um, expectations then <laughs> here's here's my thing i understand the idea that we might need to cut this in half however i do also like the idea of publishing a six-hour episode <laughs> i think that would be really funny i could do it oh man uh, so we'll see if you guys are listening to a part one or the whole thing you you know because you clicked on it so i'm i'm sorry see. and also not sorry i am a lot what can i don't say don't ever no, be no. sorry if anybody no, ever sorry tries to make you apologize for doing what you just did just say you know what i was on a podcast and they <laughs> liked what i had to say so that's all that matters i'm just gonna refer them to you guys and kimmy i'm gonna be like these people think i'm cool bam mm-hmm. or just beat them up i don't believe in <laughs> violence nick i was gonna say that okay <laughs> well hire someone to beat them up i would kick mitch mcconnell in the shins but that is like the extent of violence i'm willing to commit <laughs> I would, I would, and he would, I would probably feel bad will be. Mitch McConnell is a listener, so he might have something to say. <laughs> God, ew! I have something to say to him, so that's fine. Buckle up, Mitch. <laughs> so is Jeff Bezos. I got an email Jeff Bezos to see if we can have him on for take three as well, so you guys can Gross. discuss. I would also kick him in the shins. Actually, that would, I would do that too. Yeah. So, so watch out. <laughs> Good to know. I hope you enjoyed take one and take two, and we cannot wait to show you take three. Uh, and we also have to record it, so it's it's not done yet. But um, yeah, when it is done, you guys will be the first to know about it.